Hey guys, it's Jessica. And this is Kendra. And you're listening to Lucid Lab. Lab. We haven't recorded in like two weeks. Again. <laughs> but it feels like we were just here now that I'm I know, sitting it, in the studio. It does. It was a quick two weeks. It was, but it was a busy two weeks. It We've was. We've both been traveling. Yep. Well, I haven't really, I mean, I guess I traveled for like a weekend. But yeah. I have been busy. I just got back from Vegas yesterday morning. It was like my first time in Vegas where I left there feeling fine, like because I didn't go out. We didn't stay out till like two o'clock in the morning. I was there with my kids. So yeah, different kind of Vegas experience. But we had a really good time and we saw Chris Angel. Yeah, I saw Chris Angel like five, six years ago. I think I took my parents. My parents are big Vegas or I should say my dad <laughs> is a, a big, big Vegas, Vegas person but it was his like main show yeah it was his mind freak show yeah and mind freak I used to watch his show and my kids did too like we were all big fans of him and he came out on the stage and I don't know what I was thinking but I was thinking he was like my age and he came out and I was like damn he looks rough like, oh yeah <laughs> but then halfway through he said something about you know Chris Angel was always the emo dude that had his shirt off and he was yeah. very ripped and he like took his shirt off, but he didn't show his stomach. And he's like, come on, guys, I'm 56 years old. And Holy I was like, shit, fuck, he's well, 56 years old. The five or six years ago that I did see him, he did have his shirt off and he was ripped. Yeah. So well, he's not. Times anymore. have changed. Wow. Then I'm watching an amazement because the guy's running all over the stage. He's you know, it's a very physical show. Right. And he's yeah, I'm wondering if he's going to retire pretty soon. That's surprising because he's closer to my parents than he is us. I know. I honestly thought he was like my age. So that was shocking. But we were there and I guess it was a special night because his mom was in the audience. Oh, that's nice. He brought his four-year-old son on stage. Four-year-old at 56? Yeah. Apparently he was married and had three kids like within the last 15 years or something. Okay. So he has like a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Oh my gosh. But he brought his little four-year-old on stage and it was really sweet actually. And he talked to the audience at one point, he was like, I want to talk to you as Christopher, not this, you know, Chris Angel Aww. dude. And he was raising money because I guess his oldest son had cancer and he was raising oh money God. for pediatric. I don't know. Anyways, we all ended up like crying at this Chris Angel show because oh he was like God. appealing to everyone as a human. Yeah. And like this whole humanity. And then he ended up doing like two extra illusions for us. And like it ended up being a really, really cool That's show. Awesome. We had no idea. We just happened to be there on a special I mean, night. we're all human. And he's like, dude, I've been Chris Angel for way too long. Yeah. And, you know, he always comes across as very, you know, like, I'm the greatest in the world. I always thought he was kind of arrogant. And then we ended up going to an Italian restaurant for dinner the next night. And I told the waiter that we had seen Chris Angel. And he was like, oh, he's a regular in here. He's one of the nicest down to earth men you'll ever meet. When he's not performing, he's just a normal dude. And I'm like, that makes me really happy to hear yeah when like somebody who is honestly do think he's considered the greatest of all time. Mm hmm. To hear that he's like pretty humble yeah. in his everyday life just, I don't know, gave That's me a cool. little hope in humanity again, maybe. <laughs> but That um, is true. It was really cool. And then we went to an escape room. So you <laughs> and I right. did the it escape room. <laughs> you did say we were going to take your kids. <laughs> and I told my kids about it. And so we went to the Saw themed escape room. Oh, my God. It was so hard. It was hard? Like, we could not figure out these I things. mean, the movies are hard, so... It was crazy. I felt so dumb. You know, me and my kids have done a lot of escape rooms. We were yeah. doing really well. They were just really hard. Like there was one where you had to do a safe and you had to do it in a certain way. Like you had to turn it right four times then left five times and you had to oh do like God. 10 numbers. And we got out and I asked the girl, 
I was like, I don't think that one was solvable. She's like, it is, but barely anyone ever solves it. And I was like, okay, that makes me feel better. Okay. It was really, really fun. I do want to do an escape room again. That was really fun. Yeah. Now I want to go back and do the Blair Witch one next. We have to fly to Vegas just for Blair Witch. Yeah, it's nowhere else, unfortunately. Come on. (laughs) Someone come to other towns. They did also tell me, you know, we were there for the It escape room. They've now added a chapter two. So there's a second version of Um, the escape room which I think would be cool well I haven't told you yet about Manitou Springs no I'm excited to hear about it I stay at the cliff house it's a really old place it's been multiple things throughout the years but it's this really old hotel lots of history it's supposed to be styled from the 1800s like if you go to request a room that's what it is look online those are all the pictures it's like old-timey okay that's cool they have these two towers on either side of the building they're circular right and it wasn't supposed to be a special room didn't request one but check in and I get one of those rooms that's in the tower so half of the room was circular which was really neat it made it not feel like you're in a hotel it wasn't you weren't boxed in and I was supposed to get this like old-timey room but it was so decked out it was it was the modern version it was all blacks and whites Everything was like in glass. So it was like really fancy. Yeah. (laughs) And there was heated toilets and everything. And it was really, really amazing. And I had a really good time there. And I went to a concert, went to an art show. I bought baby carrots that I lost, which made me sad later (laughs) because there was this farm lady at this art show. And I was like, those baby carrots are the cutest thing I've ever fucking seen. And I'm going to buy them. I I have no (laughs) idea what I'm going to do with them. And then I lost them somewhere. And it made me so sad. Hopefully someone was like, wow, carrots. I have a bunny to feed at home. and I don't have time to go find something. (laughs) Or they're making a really good beef stew. Hopefully. (laughs) But it was so fun. And on Sunday, I didn't want to leave. No, I had to come back to reality because I never go anywhere. I get like kind of the blues or a little depressed. Like I felt sad yesterday. Yeah. It's like you come home and you're like, now I have to cook dinner again. Yeah. (laughs) Now I have to, you know, work and. And life and kid and school and all of that. Yesterday, for the first time in six months, six months, I think I said this a long time ago, all my stuff's in the garage (laughs) because I just moved here. And I have not touched that garage, but it's becoming winter and snow and ice. And I need to be able to park my car in my garage. I spent the entire day yesterday trying to go through it all, which if you go look at it now, it looks like I did nothing, (laughs) which is annoying. Isn't it? Yeah. Hopefully I can figure that out over the next couple of weeks. All righty. So what are we doing today, Kendra? Okay. So I am not doing a light episode today. Oh, no. This one, I think it's an important episode still. I am going to be covering the Cleveland abductions. Okay. So it's a little bit different. You know, we've done a lot of true crime, mostly murders and things like that. This Mm -hmm. one doesn't involve murder, but it does involve women being captured and held against their will for a very, very long time. So it's a hard story to hear. Okay. I know it fascinated me when it happened. And these women have all now written their own books and their own accounts of what happened in that house. And I think it's a story to listen to. Yeah, I feel like I've heard this story or at least watched something on TV about it. There was a made for TV movie. Okay. It had Taryn Manning in it playing one of the girls. And so my main references for this story when I was writing it is the three women's 
own personal memoirs. Is that okay. the word I'm looking for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a hard story to hear, but it also like, I don't know, we'll have a lot of feelings about it because once again, we're going to see that this guy could have been caught so much sooner than right. he was. And these yeah. women could have been, you know, released. You have to stop and think about this sometimes. Murder is murder. Right. right. That's scary. But abduction and years of torture is entirely different. This is almost worse in a way. Right. You know, you always saying the saying fate worse than death. Like Mm -hmm. these women lived fate worse than death. Yeah. And it's just horrifying. I won't go into very, very micro details. I think I can tell the story without, you know, causing trauma. Right. But I will say that there is a trigger warning for this episode. Okay. There's a lot of sexual assault. Yeah. And just things that are hard to hear. Prepare. (laughs) (laughs) So on May 6th, 2013, the world was shocked by news coming out of Cleveland that three young women, they were ages 24 to 32, along with a six-year-old girl, had been recovered from a house owned by 53-year-old Ariel Castro. Amanda Berry was age 27, Gina de Jesus was age 23, and Michelle Knight was age 32, and they had all vanished separately between the years of 2002 and 2004. They were freed in a dramatic rescue after over a decade in captivity in Castro's Cleveland home. Wow. Just one month prior to them escaping or being found, a vigil had been held for both Amanda and Gina because this was a very tight-knit community in Cleveland and they had been looking for these missing girls. Wow. And they had been holding vigils every year. The families had almost given up hope, many believing now that it had been nine years for Gina and 10 years for Amanda that their loved ones were probably not to be found alive. They had no idea that just literally three blocks away from where they were all gathering for the vigil, their two missing loved ones were living a life in this house of horrors. That's crazy. It's really crazy. In fact, at this vigil, their abductor, Ariel Castro, was in attendance. Oh, my God. He was chanting along with all the others in solidarity to help find the missing girls. Oh, I hate people so much. All while he knew exactly where they were and exactly what horrible things he was doing to them on a daily basis. Wow. The details coming out in the days and months following the rescue would be absolutely unbearable to hear for the family members and to know that their loved ones were so close by for all those years. A decade. A decade. Like this is. Wow. So we know like the J.C. Duggard story and there were a few others where it was just like single girls who had been abducted. But this was the first time there were multiple girls involved. Right. And these girls were unrelated and they were captured at different times and had been kept for so long. This is not a lighthearted case to cover, but like I said, it's an important one. It will bring up questions about when we should maybe say something when there's a strange neighbor or you hear something. Yeah, it's we can't stay silent because things like this could be happening right next door to you. It can. And and neighbors did feel some of these things and we'll go through it. Can I bring up an example? And this is scary. So. Within my family, or my daughter's, her other part of her family, there's her great uncle, and he has dementia. Yeah. But he's still moving around, very confused, and he has to be driven places. There have been two times now that he's been in a car at a stoplight, and he has opened the door, jumped out, and has screamed to other cars that he needs help, and this person, who is his brother or his sister... Like kidnapped him or something? Yeah, and there's and they people don't know what to do. 
And in every situation, her great uncle and her great aunt were able to talk the other person into no this is dementia you right. know this is happening and and it's also because he does use a walker and they were able to see he's very frail it's right. not it's not like a young girl jumping out of cars right saying, i need help he's also not extremely old yeah he's only just about 60 which isn't very old to be no. using a walker and looking that frail in hearing these stories i'm glad that his brother and his sister were not taken by police but i also question the other people not doing more just going oh it's okay because what if they are captive even an elder a lot of people take elderly people captive for their money for their money and their inheritance it made me sad that those people didn't do more i don't want her great aunt and uncle to be going through trauma right now but it does make me question where we are well the other thing that this case will bring up is how our system handles missing people. Right. Because you notice that there were three girls abducted, but only two they were still looking for because there was one girl, and we'll get into her life story. That's they true. weren't even looking for her. She wasn't even on a missing list. It's Nobody would have ever she found her. Was of the streets or something? Yeah. Okay. This will also bring up questions of class and money again because this all occurred in a very poor area of Cleveland. These were all girls from families that did not have means. It makes you wonder, like, would they have gotten more attention and these girls have been found earlier if they had been from a wealthier of suburb? So let's just talk about God rest her soul, Gabby Petito. She right. was a worldwide phenomenon going missing. And yet these three girls lived in a house for Nothing. 10 years and Nothing. their parents right. were doing most of the work to find yeah. the girls. And the only reason it came out is because it came out. But them missing didn't matter at all. Only to those who knew them. It's so sad. And also key to this case is the idea that until someone has been confirmed as dead, we should never forget missing persons or give up hope that they may one day be found. It's true. There are so many missing people in the world today. And a lot of people after just like this family after nine or 10 years, they're like, she's probably dead. They'll never find her. But this is a case that does bring up the hope that, yes, sometimes they are found. Yeah, it's true. So how many other missing people today could be out there trapped in someone's basement in human trafficking? Mm hmm just waiting for the moment to break free and live their lives again. So this story is not only depressing, it is also a story of these women overcoming and they have rebuilt their lives because it's now been 10 years since they were found. So I will bring a little sliver of hope in there, but it does bring up a lot of questions and how we handle these cases moving forward. Question, six years old, is she the daughter? Yes. Okay. So the six-year-old is the daughter to Amanda Berry, and we'll go into all those details. But yes, while she was in captivity, she also gave birth to a child okay. of Ariel Castro, which is a trauma in itself. And we've heard that with other abduction stories. Right. So I want to start our story by talking about the POS himself, Ariel Castro, the man responsible for holding these young women hostage and subjecting them to daily torture for over 10 years. So nobody starts out as a monster. No, we're all babies. We're all humans. And Errol Castro will have a sad story. He didn't have the greatest childhood, but never an excuse. Errol Castro was born in Puerto Rico on July 10th, 1960. So that makes him a cancer. Oh, boy. I have strong feelings about cancer. Sorry to any of you that are cancers. My (laughs) ex-husband was a cancer. So he was the third child to Pedro Castro and Lillian Rodriguez. Oh, but I love Lillian's. Lillian's a beautiful name. My niece is a Lillian. 
He was born in what was known as the coffee capital of Puerto Rico. It's called Dewey. And the Castro family was actually a prominent part of the small community there. They owned most of the land in the area. However, they lived a very primitive style of life. There was no running water. There was no plumbing. So think just very simple farm village. Okay. So even though they were the top of the food chain or like the most prominent family, it was still a very poor area. Okay. While he was young, his father, Pedro, started an affair with a young girl that lived nearby, and he was basically living a double life while Ariel was a child. So Um. Lillian had no idea. He even had four children with this mistress who lived down the mountain. Wow. And his wife, Lillian, was clueless. In 1962, Lillian was pregnant with what was to be her last child, and that's when she found out her husband was living this double life and had children with another woman. She was furious. <laughs> I don't. What I mean, you just spend half the week with one family, half the week with the other. He was always traveling for work. I, well, yeah. I've heard of this stuff before. It's just it's fucked up. Anyway, she confronted him, and when she did, Pedro said, "That's cool. I'm going to go move in with my mistress." <laughs> Does she know about the other? I don't know. Never mm-hmm. says, but he left Lillian and their children forever. He basically just wow. pieced out of their lives that had, you know, lasting repercussions. He felt abandoned by his father. As you should. His father, Pedro, moved in with the other girl. Her name was Gladys, and he had four other children with her. And then he married her shortly after leaving his original family. Gladys. Uh, <laughs> we don't know if she knew or not. I would assume she did, but she was much younger is what it said. I don't know how young. Okay. So Lillian was in despair. She didn't know how to handle the collapse of her marriage and having four children. And she actually relocated to Exton, Pennsylvania, where her father was. But she left her four young children behind in Puerto Rico to be raised by their grandmother. So Ariel's father abandoned him. And then his mother basically abandoned him right after because she couldn't handle what had happened. She rarely ever came back to see her kids. The Castro children had very little supervision. They were allowed to run all over, do whatever they wanted. Sadly, Ariel did state that he began being sexually abused by a family friend at the age of five. He said this is what began his lifelong sex addiction. Oh, no. It's really sad. Once again, we can always feel sad for the child that they were. I know. He came from a broken home. He was abused. He was a victim of sexual assault. Yeah. So by 1966, this would be Ariel's now six years old. So he's been abused for the last year. Lillian, his mother, actually sent for her children to join her in the U.S. She could have had a mental breakdown. Who knows? When If I found out my husband had four children, <laughs> like, that'd be a lot to yeah. handle with. So the four children did join her in the U.S. And at this point, Ariel does claim that his mother was very abusive and would use belts, sticks and open hands to beat them. And he said she was also verbally abusive. So it doesn't sound like it was a good happy reunion Mm, with mommy. He had an uncle named Julio Castro and he went by Ceci. And he arrived one Christmas and he provided Ariel with a guitar. And Ariel really enjoyed the guitar and he seemed to be a natural talent. Julio stepped in and kind of became a father figure to Ariel. Ariel became this budding musician. Then at nine years old in 1968... Ariel's father, Pedro, decided to come to the U.S. as well. And he relocated to Cleveland, Ohio with his new wife and their children. And he actually opened a used car lot in Cleveland and was doing very well and started making decent money. Hmm. 
says he went to join his brother in Cleveland and opened a grocery store. And then their other brother opened the first Latino record store in the area. So the Mm. Castro name became very well known and kind of owned quite a bit of that little portion of Cleveland. Mm. Because they were doing so well, Ariel's mom, Lillian, decided she would move her family to Cleveland so that they could have more contact with their father. After graduating from high school, he was still living at home with his mom and playing in all of the little gigs around the area, the bar mitzvahs, the weddings. And he would spend all of his money like on cars, fancy clothes, and then musical instruments. So in early 1980, Ariel was 19 years old. And Ariel noticed a shy 17-year-old girl from Puerto Rico. And her name was Grimelda Figueroa. Grimelda. Grimelda. And she went by Nelda. So wow. I'll refer to her as Nelda the rest of the That's time. That's a cool name. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> He would compliment her on how she looked when he passed her on the street, and she was very flattered because he was the popular, well-known guy giving her attention. He invited her to come listen to his band, and within a week, they were officially a couple. Wow. She would attend his gigs, and he would take her out for really nice meals afterwards, and her mother knew the Castro family and approved of them dating. Wow. Later on, when he was in prison, he told psychiatrists that he was never in love with Nilda, but he liked how enamored she was with him. Mm. So she actually lost her virginity to him. And when they got home late, her mother was sitting on the porch when they arrived. And, you know, mothers, we can tell things. Mm -hmm. She basically pressured them and she found out that he had slept with her daughter. Now, that's a big deal in the Puerto Rican community. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be a virgin when you get married. And so she told him, Ariel, you took her virginity. You have to marry her now. She's yours. He's 19. She's 17. Yeah. So with that, Nilda moved into the room across the street in Ariel's mother's home and They didn't get married, but she was essentially his common law wife. And she would stay with him for the next 14 years. Whoa, that's a long time. Just a few months after she moved in with him, she found herself pregnant. She wasn't even 18 years old. He had to step it up. He found a good job and an apartment for them to live in. And their first child, Ariel Jr., was born on September 27th, 1981. Ariel was 21 years old when his son was born. He was so excited about having a kid. He would take his little boy and show him off at gigs. He seemed to be a very good father. Hmm. However, this is when things drastically changed in his relationship with Nilda. After the baby was born, Ariel became very controlling of Nilda. He created a new set of rules for her. She was not allowed to leave the apartment without his permission. And when she did, she must wear long flowy dresses so no other men would look at her. She wasn't allowed to hang out with her friends anymore or to see her family. He even regulated exactly what she could buy at the grocery store. He would make a list specifically by brand. And if she deviated from the list, he would get upset with her. Gross. He told her what TV shows she was allowed to watch. Ariel was very racist against black people. And Cosby's show was really popular at the time. And he told her she could not watch that. And he would come home from work and would feel the back of the TV. And if it was warm... He would get mad at her because he knew she was watching TV without him there. And he would assume she was watching the Cosby show. Oh, my God. If she disobeyed any of his rules in any way, he would abuse her. She was only five feet tall and about 110 pounds. So she was no match to fight back against the much larger Ariel, her husband. In 1983, Nelda gave birth to their second child, Angie. Ariel would not allow anyone to come see his newborn daughter. 
After the second child, his abuse escalated again, especially when he lost the decent job he had. He was working at a chemical factory. He lost his job and then he developed a cocaine habit because he was out touring with his band still. So he would abuse her to the point where she needed medical attention and she would be like, I need to go to the hospital. And he would say, I will take you to the hospital as long as you don't say anything about this abuse. You have to basically make up a story. And if you ever mention anything, it's going to get worse for you. So he, you know, kept her in this threatened state. So they'd show up and the hospital workers saw her repeatedly. They knew abuse was happening. They weren't right. clueless. Like they're new, but they are also powerless to call in the police because Nildo would have to be the one to press charges. And, and she wouldn't admit to anyone that he, she was being abused. I was about to interrupt because injuries, we kind of know yeah. what's happening. How many times have she fell down the stairs? Yeah. You, happened. Yeah. When you're she, she black and blue, out. like... You're hit in so many places, you can't explain it. No. One spot, sure. Let's explain that. Yeah. You fall and bust your head open once, but... All over, in multiple spots on your body. Sorry, that's beating. In January of 1988, she was nine months pregnant with their third child, and he hit her over the head with a barbell. Oh, my God. Knocking her unconscious. She had to go to the hospital. Once again, they all knew, but they couldn't call the cops is what I was told. Why? Because if nobody presses charges, the cops can't do anything in domestic abuse. I'm sorry. This this is actually a fucked up thing. It's so fucked up. And this happens every single day in America. It doesn't make any sense. You're hit by a barbell. You're critically injured. They should have the right to speak to you and understand what happened. But even if she said... He hit me over the head with a barbell. They would say, do you want to press charges? And she'd go, no, there's nothing they can do. That's just how it works in our system. That's why domestic abuse is so hard. On December 30th, 1989, Ariel was finally arrested for domestic violence. He was throwing Nilda against the wall repeatedly and she escaped. She ran upstairs to a neighbor's apartment and asked them to call the police. Mm. They came and arrested him. She told the police that he had been assaulting her for years but she was too afraid to actually press charges and they had to let him go. Ugh. Ariel Jr., their oldest child, recalled growing up in the environment and seeing his father beat his mother repeatedly. When he would try to stand up for her, he would be beat as well. He recalled one instance where his father beat him with a dog chain and told him he should be thankful that he had a father who did not abandon him like his father had okay so major mental abuse yeah later on when the psychiatrists are interviewing and diagnosing what's wrong with ariel castro he does suffer from narcissistic personality disorder yeah and that will be very apparent in 1990 nilda became pregnant again and she would have their last child named arlene right after arlene was born ariel was fired for being lazy <laughs> that was literally the reason he got fired mm. from his current job at a car dealership. He was then hired as a Cleveland school bus driver. Oh, my God. In 1991 for $10 per hour. In 1992, Ariel, he was now 32 years old. He bought a house for $12,000 from his uncle Sezzi at 2207 Seymour Drive. It was a two-story white house with four bedrooms, one bathroom, and a basement. It was in one of the most dangerous communities in Cleveland at the time. It was in the midst of a crack epidemic. I guess that's why he got it for $12,000. That's cheap. 
But Nilda and her four children were just so happy to have a house. They'd been living yeah. in apartments. And so they moved into this house and they actually had room for the family. Right. But right after they moved in, Ariel's behavior became even more odd. He began adding padlocks to all of the doors in the house. And he turned the basement into a dark dungeon with a heavy trap door and added layers of bricks and curtains to make it soundproof. Oh, no. Ariel Jr., he was 11 years old at the time, doesn't know why, but he said his dad always kept locks on the attic and basement and told the children they were not allowed to go into those spaces ever. He also would nail all of the windows shut so the kids couldn't even open their own windows. Yikes. So I don't know if he was paranoid. No, he's he's preparing. Or he's preparing. Yeah, he's a control freak, narcissist. I don't know what was going on in I mean, his brain what's at the, this time. What's the timeline between this and when he abducts? We still have like 10 years before he's going to abduct years. his first girl. So he's already exhibiting very fucked up behavior. Okay. He's just controlling his family at this right. point. Nailing windows shut. He became a very well-known person on Seymour Avenue and in this new little community. He came across as like the fun neighbor. He would show up at all the parties and the barbecues and everyone liked him. He would out his guitar and play narcissist. But not with his family, right? Right. He was a different person to everyone outside of his family. Everyone would say he was a good neighbor and a friend. He let his daughters out. They would run around and play with the local neighbors and they seemed like just a sweet little typical Puerto Rican family living in the area. But behind those closed doors, Ariel Castro had unleashed an even higher level of terror on his own family. When Nilda found herself pregnant again, they had already decided they weren't having any more children. He became furious and he began kicking and beating her in the stomach to make her abort the baby. He said, I want no more children. And he blamed her for getting pregnant. Wow. While living in that house, he would not allow Nilda to use the telephone. And you'll see this in the abduction, too. He would like do these little tests on her. He would say, you're not allowed to use the telephone. I'm going to go meet my friend down the road or whatever. And then he would hide in the house and spy on her to see if she would even try to use the telephone. And if he caught her, he would beat her. So (sighs) he did this whole mental abuse thing where she wouldn't ever try to use the telephone because she would never know if he was actually out of the house or not. Yeah. So according to Nilda's sister... She said that all hell started breaking loose when the couple moved into this home because they weren't in an apartment anymore. He didn't have to worry as much about sound and neighbors. He just went crazy. He beat her. He broke her nose. She had broken ribs. He broke her arm. So Arrow was driving a bus during the day and then he joined a very prominent Latin band. So he was actually making very decent money, but he would be gone overnight for gigs. And when he was away for the night, he would lock Nilda and the children inside the house. Break windows. And remember, their windows were already nailed shut. Break them. (laughs) (laughs) His oldest son and the only boy said that the three daughters were never physically abused by Castro, but they saw him violently beat their mother and their brother growing up. So they lived in a state of fear, even though they weren't physically harmed. This guy had a million red flags before he even abducts these other women. Or girls, they're not girls, they're not women. How many people have we been with that have red flags? Right. It's scary. If you think about it. There's so many men that have So many that I've had interactions with. My God, there have been people with red flags that I should have said something about. I know. But I was a kid too. Most of them And you're afraid of them. Yeah, you're afraid of them. But I'm worried now. 
I'm worried about anybody who has interacted with certain people that I know. Poor Nelda and the kids. This is And insane. her family knew this was going on. Her family knew? Her sister knew. Your sister stops calling you. Yeah. You see her and she's beat up. They knew, but they, I don't know, maybe it was the culture. They were all Puerto Rican. They were all immigrants. Maybe the cops didn't take them seriously. I don't know what it was, but there was this culture of Dads silence and nobody said you. anything. So in October of 1993, Ariel pushed Nelda down a flight of stairs and it cracked her skull and caused permanent brain damage. The fracture was from the front of her head all the way to the back of her head. <sighs> a few weeks after this fall, she began suffering from seizures and they took her into the hospital in November for surgery. Doctors found that she had a blood clot in her brain, which had hardened into a tumor. Mm. Surgeons said that the tumor was inoperable and would prove fatal. One of the many blows to her head, who knows which one, was considered as the beginning of what led to the tumor forming. And it would be what eventually kills her. Oh, no. It's like her whole life. Her she whole was 17 when life. she met him and he began beating her at 18. So one month after she was home and she was still recovering from this brain surgery, Ariel came home in a drunken state and he began beating her to her head. And at this point, Ariel Jr., he's like 12 or 13. He went out of the house looking for help from the neighbors and Ariel got upset that his son was going out. So he started chasing him down the street and Nilda got up and locked the door behind him and she called the police. Mm. Castro was arrested and taken into custody. Good. He was taken in front of a grand jury, but Nilda recounted and she asked for all charges to be dropped against him. She denied that a beating had taken place and said it was all her fault she had provoked him. What? So... <laughs> This pisses me off. Ariel was discharged and he still had a clean record. He's been beating his children and his wife. For a long time now. For years. But he has nothing on his record because nothing mm. has ever been. Once again, our, our system is so fucking flawed. Nilda later told reporters that the reason she dropped these charges is because right before she was set to testify against Ariel, he threatened to not only kill her, but all four children if she testified against him. After this, Nilda did move out of the house finally and in with her mother. But Ariel would still come over and her mother didn't stop him from coming in the house. Maybe she couldn't. And he would come over and beat her in front of her own mother. What the fuck? Who does this? I want to see this person. Who the fuck does he think he is? He's disgusting. He's one of the most evil people I've ever researched. And I've researched some evil people. So let's jump ahead. It's July 1995. Nilda is now 31 years old. So she met him when she was 17. She's now been undergoing his abuse for 14, 14 years. And she's in the hospital again for another surgery. She meets a security guard that works in the hospital and his name is Fernando Colin. And she tells him all about her attacks and her fear of her husband. And they form this bond. And he suggests that she move in with him along with her four children because her husband would have no idea where to find her. Hmm. So this is kind of her knight in shining armor that I she's hope needed so. for 14 years. I hope so. I hope so. He is. He's a okay. good guy. Okay. I like this guy. <laughs> okay. They fell in love. They became engaged. Because she was never married to Ariel, remember? They were right, just common it was law. Common law. It seems like her life is looking up. Ariel was furious that she escaped him. Of course. He's controlled that, her for a decade. Yep. And he did find out who 
Colin was and he swore revenge on him and he threatened him. He even tried to run him over with his car in a rage in front of his own children. He hated Fernando. He tried to turn his children against Fernando. He tried everything, but kids are smart. They know who's offering a secure, stable home. Right. Fernando did file criminal complaints against him, got restraining orders, and he finally backed off. Finally left Nilda alone. Okay. And she was able to secure full custody with no visitation rights of her children. So this is after 15, 16 years, she's finally free of Ariel. I mean, children are safe. I'm always supportive of 50-50. But when you're an abusive motherfucker and you are hurting everyone, I'm sorry. It's done. The moment you lay a hand on anybody, you're out. You're out. After he lost custody, he became a completely absent father to his kids. He didn't give them any money. He, Of course, this isn't surprising. He would call them maybe one to three times per year. But Colin, he provided them with a stable lifestyle for the first time in their lives. He's really kind of the unsung hero, or I guess he's the sung hero of this story mm-hmm. for Nilda and Ariel's kids. Good. We're still not to the abductions yet. I know. We <laughs> we're haven't. still just talking I mean, about what just... a piece of shit Ariel yeah. is because I'm going right. to build it up. So we're now to May 2000. Ariel's 40 years old. He's still out playing in his bands and, you know, living life. He's not doing anything bad right now. He's not talking to his kids. It's been eight years. He was set up on a blind date by one of his bandmates and he went out with a girl named Lillian Rodan. Lillian? Another Lillian, just like his mother. What? She was 16 years younger than him. So she's 24 years old and he's 40. But she knew the Castro family. She had also moved to the States from Puerto Rico and she was enamored with him. He was the older man who played in the band. She says that he was so sweet to her. He swept her off her feet. He was very romantic. He took her out on fancy dinner dates. She said he was a good man. They slept together and she said he was kind and considerate lover. Abusers, right? They choose the people that they want to abuse, and then others they'll be. Yeah. He was a completely different version with Lillian. This relationship did not bring out that abusive side of him for whatever reason. Hmm. So Lillian did say his home was filthy. And although she would try to clean it up for him when they would stay over at his house, eventually she was like, let's just stay at my place. She did mention that he had padlocks on all of the doors and asked him one time why the basement was so locked up. He told her that it was where he kept all of his money, so he needed it to be safe. He ended up proposing to her after a couple of years of dating, and she was very charmed by him. He got along well with her family. They went to family holidays. They went to church every Sunday together. They got matching tattoos. (laughs) Lillian had heard rumors of how he treated his ex-wife, Nilda, and she actually saw Nilda often because at this point, now that he's 40, he had somehow earned back shared custody and would visit his daughters and she would go with him. Okay. She never saw the side of Ariel that Nilda did. And she decided that Nilda must have been exaggerating about his abuse. Hmm. This is what we do as women. We're like, oh, he's nice to me. Mm-hmm. So he probably wasn't as mean to her as she said. What she didn't know was that Ariel was still secretly fuming over the fact that Nilda had left him. He hadn't gotten over it. And he had no one to fully control as he had when he was married to Nilda. And for whatever reason, he put Lillian on a pedestal, maybe because she had the same name as his mother. Probably. And he wouldn't do anything to her. Mm. But he had this craving Mm. that he needed to fulfill. Okay. He needed a person to control. 
And while Lillian would not be with him every single night, he became obsessed with S&M. Okay. So sadism, masochism, and his yeah. basement was full of X-rated movies dedicated to S&M. Wow. Okay. And while he's dating Lillian and pretending to be, or I guess to her, he was a very good man, he began formulating a plan in his mind that he wanted to find a sex slave to do his bidding and that he could control now that he no longer owned Nilda. All right. So he's watching shit now. He's got this. Because there's those relationships out there. Which is fine. But it's. When it's consensual. Exactly. But now, now he just wants one. He wants a sex slave. He does not want a relationship where you role play and have fun in the bedroom, but then you respect each other outside of it, which is a mm-hmm. lot of S&M relationships. Right. He wanted a person to control and beat on like he had done for years to his wife. He had the romance with Lillian. He loved mm-hmm. her, the family. He was the nice guy. He needed to fulfill his dark desires. Mm. So this is what will lead to abduction. To just move forward with that. A whole human being is crazy. This guy is crazy. We have already <laughs> established that Ariel Castro is a fucked up individual. So his first victim would be Michelle Knight. I want to talk about Michelle Knight before we go into all the details about her abduction. Michelle did not have an easy life either. Mm-hmm. She was born on April 23rd, 1981 to Barbara Knight. She never names her father in her book. She had two brothers. They were identical twins, Freddie and Eddie, (laughs) and they were born two years after her. Her earliest memories involved living in the car with her mom and brothers. Wow. At one point, they moved in with family members in government housing. There were probably about 10 of them living in a space for meant for like a four person Mm -hmm. family. She stated that she was repeatedly abused in a sexual manner by one of the men living in the house and that started at age five he would sneak into her bed at night and she had no real way to escape him he threatened to kill her and her family if she told anyone michelle would attend school but she was absent many days because her mom would use her as a babysitter other days her mom just didn't want to get up and so she had no one to take her to school And she was seen as slow in school when really it was just that she missed school so much that she could never keep up. Right. She said she hated school and she hated when she did go because she knew she was smart enough. She just couldn't keep progressing because of so many absences. And she was always held back many grades. And so she was always the oldest child in her class. Other kids were not kind to her. They made fun of her for being slow. She was 13 years old and she was still in the fifth grade. Wow. But around that time, she found out that she was a very talented artist. And so she took to drawing in all of her school notebooks. At the age of 13, she was still being sexually assaulted by the man living in their house. And she made the decision to get out of it. She ran away. She lived on the streets under a bridge. She tells (sighs) the story of freezing because she's in Cleveland, Ohio. It's cold there. Yeah. And she found a garbage can. And she dragged it under a bridge and crawled up inside of the garbage can. To keep warm. She found a church nearby that would give out meals on weekdays for the homeless. And she actually found a very kind man there who would give her like a coat and give her clothing and try to take care of her the best that they could. But they didn't have a place for her to stay. While living under the bridge, she was approached by a drug dealer and he chose her to be a runner for him. He moved her into his house and he actually gave her a real bedroom with a bed, a shower 
And he seemed to be a very kind person. Like he didn't try to sexually exploit her or anything. Mm. He just needed someone to help him. He was about 19 years old. She was 13 and he had another boy run away living with him that was around age 16. And she says this was actually a really happy time of her life. It felt like a family. Oh, they hung out. They would go, That's you know, nice. do their drug runs or whatever. And then they would watch TV together. Not hurting anybody. No, they were just three young just kids. Making young it. kids. And he's like, I'm going to take care of you. Exactly. You're just like me. But that wouldn't last long because her drug dealer friend was busted by the cops. Oh, they found out who she was and they took her back to her mom's house. Ugh. She got put back into her mom's house. Her mom said, you're going back to school. So she went to high school and it was there. She met a boy and this was another seemingly happy time of her life. This boy gave her her first relationship. She thought he was in love with her. She was in love with him. But then her world was shattered when she found out that he was actually using her as like his side chick. He already had a steady girlfriend. So she was just the girl he was messing around with. Okay. But it was too late because she found out she was pregnant at that time. Oh my God. And she's 17. So she's pregnant at 17 and the boy is like, I'm out. I have another girlfriend. Her mom told her she should abort the baby, but she didn't want to. So she kept her baby. And at age 18, she gave birth to a little boy named Joey. Mm. She said Joey was her world. She called him Huggy Bear. And she was able to get on welfare. She dreamed of being able to find a job and move out on her own from her mother's house with her child, Joey. She said she loved being a mom. Now, Michelle had not progressed in school. She was also physically limited. She was only four foot seven inches tall. Wow. So she's tiny. (laughs) Wow. Okay. And she never did finish a high school degree because she dropped out pregnant. So finding a job was pretty hard for her. So right after the birth of Joey, her mother started dating a new man. Michelle said he was abusive and he had an alcohol problem. Her mother invited him to move into the house with Michelle and Joey. Of course. One afternoon in June of 2002, she had a job interview and she had asked her mom to watch Joey while she went to the interview. She came home and her mother was not there and her son had been left with this alcoholic boyfriend. Oh, no. She said Joey was on the bed just hanging out and she went in to get him. The boyfriend made an inappropriate advance towards her. Her two-year-old son got scared and he tried to intervene, calling for his mom. And the man Mm. grabbed her son and threw him onto the floor (gasps) so hard that it actually fractured his kneecap. Oh, no. When Michelle took him to the ER, she was afraid to tell the doctors what had really happened. So she said he fell in the park. But while she was still at the hospital, the boyfriend's sister actually called and told them what really happened. Then they had to call the police in and the boyfriend pled guilty to child endangerment. But because she lived with this boyfriend, they actually took her child, her two-year-old boy, Joey, out of the house and put him into foster care. Oh, no. Until they could investigate further and make sure there was nothing else going on in the house. So she lost her little boy, which was devastating to Michelle. He was her whole world. And so she moved out of her mother's house and she started renting a room at her cousin's house. She's now 21 years old. Having her son away caused her to fall into a deep depression. And her cousin was like, you need to get out of the house and meet some people in the neighborhood, make some friends, do something other than just sitting here and obsessing about getting your child back. How do you not obsess? I don't know. It's your fucking kid. That's all you should think about. And she lost him just because she was poor, honestly, and had to live with her mom and yeah, a piece of shit boyfriend. You know, like it's you don't move on with your life when you lose your one kid. No, I'm sorry. And it's in this neighborhood that she meets Ariel Castro's daughter, Emily. 
They became really good friends, even though Emily was only 14 years old at the time and Michelle was 21. But Michelle had spent most of her life around younger kids because she was always in school and was the oldest. So they still related. So let's go to the pivotal day that changed Michelle's life forever. It was August 22nd, 2002. She had a 2.30 p.m. appointment in downtown Cleveland with a social worker to talk about next steps to getting her son back. She was supposed to get a ride from a relative, but they flaked last minute and she didn't have any money for bus fare. So she was like, I guess I'm walking to the appointment. This is 2002. She didn't have a cell phone. There was no GPS. There was not a Mm. lot out there for direction. So she gets lost and she's not real sure where to go. And it's coming up on her appointment time and she's worried. So she stops in at a family dollar to call the social worker's office to get directions and just let them know she's definitely coming. Mm -hmm. What she didn't know is while she was walking and when she entered the family dollar, Ariel Castro had been parked nearby and he was watching her. He had recognized her as one of Emily's friends Mm. and assumed she was a similar age to his 14-year-old daughter. Remember, she's only four foot seven inches. Yeah. And she's hanging out with his 14 year old. So he assumes she's young. He then enters the family dollar and he overhears her talking to someone asking to use the phone. So he quickly understands what's the situation. And he saw this as his opportunity to fulfill his dark desire. He told Michelle he could help her get to the appointment And Michelle immediately recognized him as the father of her friend, Emily. Yeah. Although they had never met in person, she had seen pics from her, you know, friend and she felt like he was probably trustworthy. It's your friend's dad. Right. So she accepted the ride. When she got into his car and shut the door, she noticed there were no handles inside the passenger door. Oh, my God. He also had a sign in his window that said puppies for sale. So she starts making small talk. She said he seems very normal. And she mentions that she would love to get a puppy for her son once she gets him back into her custody. He loves dogs. Can I interject? Yeah, what's up? You get into a car with no door handles. Just make sure you have that little baby device on you. It's literally, what is it? It's a quarter of an inch long and they have them on keychains. You can put it anywhere has a point on it but it can break any window it breaks the whole window i don't have one of those get one i do have one smart okay there you go ladies all i know is as soon as you get in a car and you notice there's no handles it's already like red flag yeah but you can immediately if you have something because they're not going to immediately do it to you right then and there in front of a store no immediately break it well i think it's kind of creepy too that he has a puppies for sale sign that means he's been cruising and hoping a kid would a approach him about puppies it's really fucked up yeah so back to castro and michelle so michelle said she wanted to have a puppy for her son joey when she gets him back and castro said actually i need to swing by my house on the way i need to check on the dogs it won't take me very long i assure you my house is on the way isn't she already late though close to it but she's at his mercy right okay he pulls into his driveway and michelle says i'm just gonna wait in the car And so he leaves her in the car and a few minutes later he pops his head out and he says you should come in and see the puppies so you can pick one out for your son. And she says she doesn't know why but she fucking entered the house. I mean it's puppies. Give me a break. She says when she entered the house she saw pictures of his daughter Emily hanging on the wall. It just seemed normal. 
And she's just hanging out in the kitchen. But she noticed it was really quiet. There's like no puppy sounds coming from anywhere. Ariel tells her, oh, yeah, my daughter Emily's here. She's actually in another room. Come on upstairs and I'll show you the puppies. So she walked upstairs with him and she walked into a small pink room and he slammed the door behind her and locked it. Oh, no. And at this moment, Michelle just said, what the fuck? Like, I've got to get to my appointment, my son. Like, and so she starts panicking. She's like, I got to go get my son back. I told you my story. Like, I don't have time for this. She didn't Mm -hmm. really know what he was doing. He grabbed her and he covered her mouth and nose with his hand and he threw her against the wall. He told her if she screamed, he would kill her. He was 180 pounds. She was no match for him. Yeah. He tied her up with an orange electrical extension cord. He wrapped her ankles and wrists and then around her neck. So he basically hog tied her. He drops his pants and he begins jacking off. (sighs) And she's like, what the fuck? Right as he's about to climax, he all of a sudden became emotional. And he told her, I just really need a friend and I need someone here. My wife and my kids left. He's like giving her this whole sob story. And she's like, I don't know what the fuck to think right now. And so she's just saying, okay, yeah, you know, what do you do if she's trying to play along? Mm -hmm. She said immediately when he finished, he turned mean again. Oh, no. Different person. He told her to shut up and he punched her. He pulled out a gun and he threatened to kill her if she made any noise. He then took a second extension cord cable, wrapped her up in that again, and then he stuffed a sock in her mouth. She said it was dirty and it smelled absolutely horrible. Mm. And then he wrapped her head in duct tape and then he left. She was left alone in a dark room and he turned on a radio super loud with Spanish music. She doesn't know how long she was in that room. This is just the first day. This is the first hour of a decade. So this is August 22nd in the afternoon when he took her. Her mom, Barbara Knight, noticed her daughter had not come home and she reported her daughter missing on August 23rd. She said the police did very little to help her find Michelle. Michelle was 21 years old. They assumed she had just left and that she was upset because she was not able to get her son back. Mm -hmm. She wasn't a minor, so they really didn't spend very many resources looking for her. Right. And there was even talk about it. You know how I mentioned she wasn't on a missing reports list whenever they found her. The reason being she was reported as missing and they follow up every so often with the family to see if the missing person has been found. Right. They called Barbara Knight at some point and she had changed her number or moved and they couldn't get a hold of her and they Mm. didn't have an answer from the family. So the Cleveland police just took her off the list. Oh, and her mom, I think, eventually subscribed to the idea because her daughter had ran away before that she probably just gone gone. somewhere. Can't do that. No. Michelle had a sad, sad story. So back to the house where she's at now. She was left in the dark for many hours and all of a sudden Ariel returned and he had an Egg McMuffin and he unwrapped her mouth and he shoved the Egg McMuffin into her mouth. She spit it out initially. She thought it might be drugged. But then he held her down and he forced her to eat it. He then untied her and sexually assaulted her, raped her repeatedly for over an hour. She said after he was done and laying next to her, he once again changed into this like emotional, weird dude. And he began talking with her like they were a boyfriend, girlfriend. Hmm. He starts pouring his heart out about how 
he had such a rough upbringing and that he's a victim too. He was molested at a young age. And Michelle said she tried to appeal to him acting along like as a friend. And she's like, you should just let me go. I won't tell anyone. I understand, you know, we're both victims. He then jumped off the dirty mattress that he had her on. He pulled some cash out of his wallet and he threw it at her. And he said, here's the payment for your services. And he told her to get dressed and she thought he was going to let her go. Oh, no. But of course he's not. So then he dragged her down the stairs. He unlocked the basement door and he took her down there. She was afraid he was going to kill her at this point. She said the basement was full of piles and piles of dirty clothes everywhere. She mm. said it was disgusting. It smelled like shit. It was just foul. But she said in the middle of the basement was a large metal pole. He told her she was going to stay down in the basement until she could prove herself and he could trust her. So he pulled out two large rusty chains and he tied her to the pole in the middle of that basement. And then he placed a motorcycle helmet over her head to muffle any screams she might try to make. And he left her there. (sighs) She says that she would just pass out. She didn't really know how long she was down there. It was completely dark. She couldn't see anything. She would hear him walking around upstairs so she would know when he came home. Mm -hmm. He would play music very loudly and he would watch porn all the time. So she would hear it. Gross. And it was disgusting. And she actually began to dread when the door would open because she knew if the door opened, he was coming down to assault her. He would feed her one time per day. It usually would be a breakfast sandwich from McDonald's, an egg McMuffin or a sausage McMuffin and a cup of orange juice. That's all he would give her. She said she would be sexually assaulted up to seven times per day. Oh, my God. Now, this is bizarre to me. He would even bring his girlfriend over. She would hear Lillian come in and she would hear them like watching TV. She would even hear them like having sex, like normal sex above her. All the while, she's like locked down there. He's having his girlfriend over for dinner and hanging out. And he's got a woman locked in his fucking basement. So she had been left just down in the basement in her clothes. She didn't have any facilities or anything to clean up. Eventually, a week or two in, he brought down a plastic bucket for her to use. And that's what was going to be her toilet. She said she endured the days by just thinking of her young son and how she would be with him again. She said if she didn't have Joey to live for, she probably wouldn't have tried to live. I mean, it's true. What do you do? She spent over a month in the basement. And then one day he came down and he took her upstairs. He put her in a room. The windows had been boarded up and covered in barbed wire. From the inside? From the inside. Wow. She had no idea if it was day or night because they were so blacked out. So the only thing she had was just one of the pull switch lights. Mm Mm-hmm. He had a dirty mattress on the floor and he would chain her to a pole that he had set up in the room and she basically just had access to the mattress and then he brought in a plastic bucket that she would use as her bathroom and that Uh, was her life. All right. I'm not saying as much on this episode. It's it's shocking. Because I'm just listening. There's really not anything to say. We all know it's completely horrifying. He did not take care of her during the winter She said she almost froze to death. She was not given any blankets. Uh, He didn't turn any heat on for her. So she was just living in the most abysmal conditions you can imagine. She found herself pregnant about three to four months into her abduction. Wow. She was afraid to tell him. She didn't know how he would react. Mm -hmm. But eventually she began leaking milk as one of the symptoms. And he noticed it. And he said, are you fucking pregnant? And he beat her 
with a barbell until she miscarried. He then blamed her for killing the child and beat her again for that. He didn't allow her to ever leave the room. She had been there for over four months. She had not been able to shower. She had not been able to brush her teeth. She said she was just disgusting. She decided the only way she could push back was by dehumanizing him. So she refused to call him by his name. He wanted her to call him by his name. Maybe because she was 21 years old when she was abducted. She was the one that pushed back the most of the three. Mm -hmm. But that would not do her any favors. It would make him abuse her more than the others. But she only would refer to him as the dude. Good. So she'd been there about five months and it was Christmas time and he bought her a puppy. (laughs) He said, you need some company. So he bought her a puppy. And she's, she's like, like, I came into this house for a fucking puppy. <laughs> now he buys her one. Wow. She loved having something, you know, she yeah. attached to him and he would sleep with her and he was everything. But one day. Did he kill the puppy? One oh day he God. came in to abuse her and she said that the dog came to her defense because he was a good dog. Yeah. And he bit Ariel and Ariel took the puppy and broke his neck right in front of Michelle. Oh my God. He was also very emotionally abusive to her. He'd always rub it in her face that no one was looking for her. He's like, I watch TV every night and nobody even reported you missing. Nobody loves you. Nobody cares about you. You'll never be found. Mm. He would also taunt her about not spending the holidays with her son. It's her first Christmas away. And he was like, oh, Joey thinks that you don't care. Like he was just a piece of shit. Wow. She said in January, he finally allowed her to have a shower for the first time. She'd been there for five months. I mean, he's raping her seven times a day. Wow. And she hasn't showered. So she got in the bathroom and while she was in there, she found a needle. Mm. She was able to hide it and take it upstairs. And there was one day she heard him leave. She was assuming he was going off to work because he left every morning. He was a bus driver. He'd go every morning, come back for a few hours. A child. This guy's a Cleveland bus driver. A children's bus driver. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Okay. She was able to pick the lock with this needle and was like halfway out of the window. And he came back for some reason. She saw him pulling into the driveway halfway out of the window. And she quickly ran back and she tried to lock her chains back up. So it looked the same way. But she said she had the window open. Mm -hmm. She was like about to step out. Go on the roof. I don't know. I would still do it. He came upstairs and noticed she wasn't chained up the way he had left her. And he knew something was up and he was able to find the needle. That was her only chance in the whole time that she had to escape. And she failed. Oh, my God. As punishment, because he knew she was up to something, he put her back in the basement and told her that she wasn't the first one he had kept in the basement and she better be careful. He was basically alluding to the fact that he had had other women there and had killed them before. So he was using this like psychological manipulation. Yeah. After a few weeks of being in the basement again, he took her back upstairs. And this time he did give her a TV to watch in her room. And he gave her some spiral notebooks with a pencil. And she said that was like the best thing ever to have a TV where she could connect with the outside world and then have a spiral notebook. She started writing letters to her son, Joey. Of course. She started journaling everything that was going on in the house. She was an artist, like I said before, so she filled up her spiral notebooks with drawings. Yeah. She was always careful not to document too much about what she was feeling and thinking of Ariel because at any time he would come in and just start reading her notebook. Of course. And if he saw anything that he didn't like, she knew he would beat her. I would rip pages out the back 
right <laughs> specific details on that and hide it in a unsewn part of the mattress something he continued to assault her multiple times a day and life went on like this for 10 months she believes in his sick mind he really did think that they had a relationship he would tell her that he didn't know what to do with his anger and he would be almost apologetic about what he was doing to her but he was never he wouldn't let her go he wanted her to feel sorry for him because Mm -hmm. he was a narcissist He was obsessed with blondes and he began talking to her about 10 months in saying that he needed another girl. He wanted a blonde this time. She said he would come home and tell her about girls he saw on the street that he wanted to abduct and he would follow them. And he said, I'm just waiting for the right chance. So that's when we come to the next girl that he would find. And her name is Amanda Berry. So Amanda Berry, she was born in April of 1986, and she grew up just a few blocks away from where Ariel Castro's home was on Seymour Avenue. She had a sister, Beth, who was two years older than her. Uh, Her parents had split when she was four years old, and she spent the school year with her mom, Luana, in Cleveland, and then she would stay with her dad and grandma in Tennessee during the summertime. She was very close with her grandmother, and she loved being in Tennessee and playing with her cousins in the mountains. Her dad had nicknamed her Commanda Amanda because she was quite a little (laughs) firecracker. (laughs) Oh, she's about my age. I was born in January 1986. Yeah. She attended school with Emily and Angie Castro. She was a very good student and she was described as a girly girl. She had dreams of becoming a fashion designer when she grew up. She loved rap music and was a huge fan of Eminem. She had posters of him all over her wall. Hmm. At age 16, she started working at the Burger King near her home. She was five foot one and she had beautiful, long, wavy blonde hair. And she was. She was a gorgeous little girl. Does he like short girls? Is this the thing? Okay. So So is Amanda and Michelle, were they both white? Yeah, they were both white girls. I I realized I didn't describe what Michelle looked like. She was, you know, I said she was four foot seven. She was a little thing and she was a brunette. And yeah, a cute little white girl. Amanda was a cute little blonde white girl. Interesting. Okay. She was always wearing Tommy Hilfiger, Nautica. She was a little Miss Fashion. That was the time. Yeah, it was. 2003. Typical. Typical high school. Really. They said she wore lots of jewelry. She was very trendy. She liked to stay out and party with her friends on the weekends. She liked to drink beer, smoke weed. She was a normal 16-year-old. Right. In March of 2003, she had started dating a 16-year-old boy that she met in the drive-thru when she was taking his order at Burger King. Oh. And his name was DJ. DJ. <laughs> Such a high school dude's name. <laughs> Life was good for her. Right. Because she is my age. Mm-hmm. That just reminds me of everything from my high school days it was yeah. all about Acrombie and Fitch and <laughs> Tommy Hilfiger and oh, I Tommy just went one of the boxes that I just went through last night that I talked about earlier I found all kinds of that shit <laughs> so on April 21st 2003 it was around 2 p.m. Amanda kissed her mom goodbye as she headed off for work for her shift at Burger King that afternoon the next day was her 17th birthday and she had plans for a party with her friends and family. She had an appointment to get her nails done that night, and after that appointment, she was going to meet up with her boyfriend, DJ, around 10 p.m. She had just gotten a new cell phone, so she felt safe walking to and from her shift instead of spending the money on bus fare. So it was a normal day. She went to her shift, and she clocked out at 7.36 p.m. from Burger King, and she started walking towards home. Ariel Castro was driving with his youngest daughter, Arlene, and he saw Amanda walking. 
He had had his eye on her for the last couple of months. He had seen her working at Burger King when he stopped in for food. Okay. She's a beautiful little blonde. So Ariel dropped his daughter off at a house close by, and then he made a U-turn back to the street where he had seen Amanda walking. She had noticed his van going by earlier, and she had seen Arlene in the front seat, and she recognized her as just a girl from her school. She was on her cell phone talking to her sister, Beth, and Ariel pulled up and asked if she wanted a ride. It was cold out that night. Hmm. He seemed like a normal, nice dad, and she thought the girl she had seen in the van was still with him and that he had just made a U-turn. So she accepted. She told her sister she was grabbing a ride and she would see her in a minute, and then she hung up and got into Ariel's car. Oh, my God. When she got into the van, she realized the girl wasn't there after all. Ariel seemed down to earth, and he immediately started asking if she knew his son, Ariel Jr., that used to work at the Burger King, and his other daughters, Emily and Angie, who had gone to her school. And she's like, oh, yeah, I know both of them. It was just a normal conversation, and he started driving. But she noticed that he sped right past her house. Oh, no. So then she asked him, where are we going? And he said, oh, I just want to stop by my house real quick. You can say hi to Angie. I just need to get something and then I'll take you home. (laughs) Which is weird. Yeah. But he pulled into his driveway and he invited her inside his house and she followed him in thinking that Angie was in there. When they walked into the kitchen, he said, oh, Angie's in the bathroom. She'll be right out. I think she's taking a bath. I mean, she was just in the car. No, that was Arlene. That was the other daughter. Oh, okay. That was his youngest that he had, which was younger than Amanda. He then led her upstairs. I don't know why she would go up. I guess you don't know until you're in that situation. You don't. And these girls regret every second. I mean, they're young. Yeah. You're young and you're expecting to be able to trust a friend's adults. God damn. He led her upstairs and she noticed a closed door that had a large hole in it. She could see a girl in there. And she said, who is that? And Ariel said, oh, that's my roommate. He then led her into another bedroom. He was kind of like giving her a tour of the house. The way that he explained it was, oh, let me just show you around while we wait for Angie to come out of the bathroom. I don't know if any dude is wanting to show you his house run. That's what I learned from this. (laughs) That's just reminding me of that TikTok where it's like, run Mm -hmm. and you just run. If you're in this situation, someone's inviting you in. You don't know them personally. Fucking run. It's just, I think, especially when you're young, like you said, and it's an older father figure, you feel like you should follow their directions. Yeah. And it's authority we're polite, over you. Right? And it's yeah, impolite yeah, yeah. to say, I don't want to go inside the house. I'll just wait in the car. Like, yeah, it's fucked. And I, they use that to their advantage. And I'm thinking of my own kid. And How do I explain to her? Run, run to someone else. Someone else you might not be able to trust as well. I know. Right. They're not in the nicest part of Cleveland here. Yeah. He then led her into another bedroom and she felt like something was off. And she told him, hey, I need to go home. I have an appointment. Yeah. And she said that's when he grabbed her and told her not to make a sound. He threw her to the floor and he raped her. Oh, my God. He duct taped her hands and feet together and then he put a motorcycle helmet over her head. He then led her down to the basement and he chained her to the pole there just as he had to Michelle. Oh. When Amanda didn't come home, her mother, Luana, knew something was up. Yeah, for sure. Her daughter had left her cell phone charger and the $100 cash she had set aside for getting her nails done that night. Ooh. She also knew her daughter would never go anywhere right after work in her Burger King uniform. 
Right. So she began calling around to all the friends and saying, have you seen Amanda? She called her boyfriend. And by midnight, when no one had seen her, Luana went to the police station. Yeah. This is so sad because now it's after midnight and it's officially Amanda's 17th birthday. And instead of celebrating like they had planned, her mother was reporting her as a missing person. It's insane. It's fucked. By the time cops got to their house the next morning, Luana had already printed up missing posters to hang up around the area. She reiterated that her daughter was a good girl. She was a good student and she would never just run off. Right. And so her mom fought with the police and she's like, if she was going to run away, she would not have left $100 cash and her cell phone charger here. Right. And that's not enough for them, though. They're like, well, teenagers run yeah, away Yeah, that's the what time. they want to do. And her mother and sister adamantly said, because the police also want to say that they're drug addict. They said, you know what? She smoked weed and she drank alcohol, but she never would have touched any other drug. We know our daughter and sister well yeah. enough. She had big plans for the future. She wasn't going to be getting into that shit. It's not their opinion. It's their responsibility to exactly. find out what has happened. You know, the mom and the sister know her better than anyone. But here's where I get really mad, too. So then the detective went to meet with her boyfriend, DJ. Now, I didn't say earlier, but DJ was a Hispanic boy. And so we know racial profiling. Yeah. They knew DJ was supposed to meet her that evening after she got her nails done. And DJ said, yeah, I had expected to hear from her. She was supposed to call me around 10 p.m., but she never did. And he said around midnight, he did receive a call from Amanda's phone, but he couldn't quite hear anything. He said it was just like a really bad connection. And then he started worrying about her that he actually went out searching for her that night. He was worried that she was in trouble because of that weird phone call, but he had no luck in finding her anywhere. And he actually told the police at that moment, he said, she walks home from work and I'm concerned she may have been kidnapped. Mm. But from that moment on, the detectives honed in and decided that DJ was the primary suspect in her disappearance. Of course they did. He's a Hispanic boy. I mean, you got to check it out, but of course they did. Yeah. So DJ and Luana, her mom and her sister Beth kept calling her cell phone. Ariel Castro had her cell phone. And he, as a sick fuck that he was, he was listening to every single voicemail left from her concerned friends and family. He would even erase them to make room for them to leave more. Because the voicemail would fill up. He took enjoyment in hearing the calls get more and more frantic as the days passed on. Finally, he had a girl that people missed. Yep. Okay. So on April 28th, it's now been one week since Amanda went missing. Luana Miller went on TV begging for someone to help her find her daughter. Her sister Beth also appealed for her sister to come home. Ariel was watching it from his TV in the living room, and after it was over, he actually picked up Amanda's cell phone and called her mother. When she answered, he said, I have your daughter. She's healthy and okay. And then he hung up. A few minutes later, he called Luana back, and this time he said, Amanda is going to be my wife. She wants to be with me. And then he hung up. What? That's the only thing she ever heard after her daughter went missing. But she took this to the FBI. Yeah. This is Mama Bear. She's like coming out for her daughter. You know, Mm -hmm. her 16-year-old went missing and now she has this motherfucker calling her. Mm -hmm. She knows her kid's kidnapped. Right. And so she goes to the FBI and she asks them to trace the phone, do whatever they can. This could be ended right then and there. How can they not trace that? I don't know what it was like in 2003, but oh, they didn't give find me a anything. fucking break. I know. I don't believe that for a fucking second. The other problem I think was going on is that they were honed in on her boyfriend, DJ. And so that was all. The, it's the tunnel vision again. It's the same thing with some of these other cases we said they've like decided. If we can find 
Osama bin Laden <laughs> in a fucking cave. I'm sorry. Why can we not you find, can this find girl? a child in a house right. based on cell service? But they didn't. Fuck you all. Oh, I'm just I'm just done with the excuses. So, I agree. So Michelle Knight was still living in the house. Of course, she's chained to her room in the pink room. And she had a TV at this time. Remember, he gave her a TV. And so she's been watching all of this. And she knows a little blonde girl from the Um, same neighborhood has gone missing. And she's like, motherfucker, I know what happened. Yeah. And she also knew that meant there was another girl in the house with her. That it would be weeks before she saw Amanda. Wow. Ariel brought her into Michelle's room. Amanda was dressed in his PJs. And he introduced Amanda to Michelle as his brother's girlfriend. Michelle wasn't dumb. She knew that it was Amanda Berry and that he had fucking abducted her. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You don't bring your brother's girlfriend in looking like that. And she's a child. Right. (laughs) Michelle said she was really embarrassed when Amanda came in because he wasn't allowing Michelle to wear clothes at this point. So Michelle was literally chained to a mattress, naked, freezing. And she said that her room was disgusting because he would just bring in food and like throw the wrappers on the floor. There were old pizza crusts. It was just disgusting. And she also mentioned that while she had a plastic bucket to use as the toilet, he would rarely ever empty it. So she was living in complete disgusting squalor. Yeah. And she was embarrassed. That's where you bring your brother's girlfriend. Right. Exactly. You know. She said there were flies everywhere. And even in those conditions, when her and Amanda saw each other, they smiled and they just like felt a little better, even though they were in this horrible situation, just knowing that there was another person there. Of course, it's not their fault. They're living in that moment. Right. And that kind of disgust. It's it's not their fault. Now, here's where he starts another whole fucked up psychological game because Michelle's living in squalor. She's naked. She's not allowed to do any of that. She gets like a shower once every few months. But she notices that Amanda is clean. She's been able to shower and she has clothing on, unlike her. Mm. But after that one meeting, Michelle wouldn't see Amanda again for many months. He would keep her in a separate room. Wow. Does she need to ask for blonde hair dye or something? Michelle. Michelle. I mean, she's obviously being treated very differently. He abducted them for different reasons. He abducted Michelle to be his sex slave that he could abuse. And he abducted Amanda to be his wife. Oh, okay. So back to Amanda's mom. She kept the pressure on the police. She was in there every single day. She stayed in touch with the media. She would go on all of the news shows. She was making sure that Amanda was not forgotten and continued to be kept in the public eye. But the frustrating thing is the FBI continued to hone in on her boyfriend, DJ, even stating that they had received tips that Amanda had been seen getting into a white sedan with three men inside. Conveniently, DJ owned a white sedan. My God. The authorities thought it was odd for a 16-year-old to be driving such a nice car and immediately deduced that he must be up to something illegal. He must be moving drugs. And so they actually showed up at his house. They impounded his car and searched his entire home, and they found nothing. And (laughs) and they put DJ under lie detector test after lie detector test, and he passed them all because he didn't abduct her. No. He didn't do anything. He was just dating her. He loved her. He's like, dude, I wanted a (laughs) WAPA, and I found a (laughs) WAPA. I don't know. Found a cute girl. Once again, with that tunnel vision, just looking at DJ, and they had been looking at all the tips, maybe they would have found out that she was in this guy's house three blocks away from where she was captured. Yeah. Or actually used what you do have to find her by her cell phone. Because what they can do is they can be like, 
oh, it's in this radius and check every house and be like, oh, this guy was arrested for abuse. What's frustrating is Ariel would have never been looked at because he had a clean record at this point. But so does DJ. He's a kid. Yeah, but he was connected to Amanda. I'm just thinking, I think we talk about it here in a minute because they will start looking for sex offenders and things like that Mm because that's the first thing they think of when a girl goes missing. But Ariel Castro would give no red flags. He has a perfectly clean record, even though he abused and locked his own wife and children up for years. He was a Cleveland school bus driver. Like he should have never even been hired to be a fucking school bus driver based on his background. Right. I mean, how do you not look past that? (laughs) He's a kid bus driver. You're not going to look to that first. It makes me scared for I don't trust fucking anybody anyways. And the more we do cases like this, the less I trust people. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the more I lose faith in our authorities and our justice system, all of it, our country. And now we just become raging like angry bitches because it's just so frustrating. I don't. I'm not an angry, raging bitch. But you know what? No, I want to talk are, about this because stuff. Because that's how they're going to define us. But what we are is we are humans in this country. We're fed up. Not enough is done ever. No. In any scenario. I'm yeah. fucking done. <laughs> Guess what we don't do in this show is transcripts. Fuck the US. You can't <laughs> find me. Try and find me. Try and find me, bitch. Oh, they will one day. Whatever. Whatever. So let's go back to Ariel's House of Horrors, where he now has two girls captured and living in bedrooms upstairs chained to the mattress. While he's doing this, he still has his fucking girlfriend coming over. Lillian is coming over to his house. She's even staying the night. She this baffles she, me. And she doesn't notice two rooms closed with women moaning. She's completely beside herself when she finds out later what was going on while she was there. But she said he always had music playing. And anyone who came in his house will hear this repeatedly. When they came over, he always would turn the radio on and he just always had sound going on. But there was one night Lillian was over there and she wasn't spending the night. She was just having dinner in the kitchen and he didn't have the music playing like he usually did. And she heard a TV on coming from upstairs, which she thought was odd because Ariel's bedroom was on the main floor. Hmm. That's the other thing. She never went upstairs because his room was on the main floor. The bathroom was on the main floor, the kitchen, the living room. There'd be no reason for her to go upstairs. Okay. She said, why is there a TV on upstairs? What's up there? Castro made some like lame excuse. And then he turned on the radio like he always did with the Spanish music. And then she was never allowed or invited to come over to his house again. Oh, wow. He stopped it. Okay. He began making excuses. He didn't just say, you're not allowed to come to my house. He always had a reason for her not oh. to come over that she didn't really think about until after. And then yeah. she's like, oh, that makes sense now. And then she said all of a sudden he was busy with gigs on the weekends. And he was saying he was going out of town or he was practicing more because he had all of these wonderful gigs. opportunities. Right. He just started kind of distancing himself from her. OK. He just wanted white girls. Right. I guess. She wasn't. So a few months later, the girls got to see each other again. Uh, Michelle was actually brought in this time to Amanda's room. And the whole reason he did this was, again, the psychological warfare. He wanted to show Michelle how Amanda was living versus how she was. He showed up in Michelle's room and said, get up 
and come with me. And Michelle's naked. And he says, we're going to go say hi to Amanda. And she's like, can I put some clothes on? And he said, what's it matter? You got the same shit she's got, like Mm. basically, you know, demeaning her. And, And so he made her go in to see Amanda naked. He let her into the room and Amanda was dressed and clean and her room was cleaned up more. She had a nicer television. She was chained to the bed still. She was still fully a captive. And she also had a plastic bucket for the bathroom. So he wasn't letting her go to the bathroom or anything. But he would let her shower and he would let her wear clothes. But nevertheless, she said that he actually left them alone for about two minutes. And they just hugged each other and cried. Yeah. And then he showed back up and he took her back out. I don't know why he let her in there. I think it was just to show off that he was being nicer to Amanda than he was to Michelle. Or to keep them having hope for a second? I don't know. You can't equally cover a decade of this kind of trauma Mm -mm. in describing it. No. Either through book or through anything else. Maybe in the days following up to that, they were both losing it. And so he connected the two of them so that it... To help. To help them. He told Michelle that he didn't like to see Amanda cry. So he had like a softer disposition hmm. towards Amanda. Okay. And that worked in Amanda's favor, but it actually worked to Michelle's detriment because when he would try to assault Amanda or make her do things, she would push back. She had more leverage with him because he was fascinated and just so enamored with the blonde girl that if he wanted to do something, Amanda could say, no, I don't want to do that. And then he would come over and, and make do Michelle it do Michelle. it. Okay. Michelle was what she described herself as the punching bag. She was the one he abused the most. And the other girls will corroborate that story. He was just absolutely horrible to Michelle. He would come in and tell Michelle that no one was looking for her. People cared about Amanda. And he just made Michelle feel less than human every chance he got. But Michelle was probably the strongest of the three. Of course. And he hated that. that. So Michelle ended up pregnant again. This would actually be the third time she was pregnant. She ends up being pregnant five times while there. And every time he beats her until she miscarries. So about six months after he abducted Amanda Berry, Ariel broke up with Lillian, his girlfriend, his fiance, actually. They had been together for almost four years at that point. Wow. She was heartbroken. She had no idea. She didn't see it coming. She knew he had been busy with, you know, band practice and all of that. But she thought this was the man she was going to marry. She had no idea any of this that was going on. Mm -hmm. But the real reason that he broke up with Lillian is because he had now began making plans in his head to abduct a third girl. The two weren't enough. He needed more. And he knew bringing a third girl in, there's no way he could maintain his relationship with Lillian, too fucked up you got to have your priorities Uh, i guess if you're going to be an abductor uh in january of 2004 child welfare officials alerted police that castro he was still working as a school bus driver he apparently left a four-year-old boy unattended on a bus while he went inside to get food from a wendy's oh he then dropped the boy off at school but the boy at that point had missed several classes and his mom had called the school worried Uh, yeah And they reported the incident to the police and the Cleveland School District. Police go to Ariel Castro's home. Mm. No one answers the door and they leave. (laughs) They didn't return. Ever. Not for this incident. It was investigated by the Child Welfare Board and determined to be a small negligence. They decided there was no criminal intent by Castro. His punishment was a suspension of 60 days without pay. 
but they could have caught him right there, January 2004. That's a hard thing because it's not a small negligence because had that child tried to leave by himself, wandered anywhere else, was picked up by anybody else, had anything could have happened. Have you seen the one where the bus drivers were so distracted by other children in the bus that they let a girl go, but her backpack was still there? When they closed the door and her backpack was caught in the door. This is recent. And they drove dragging this little girl for blocks. That's so. And this other guy was standing there. I don't know. Another adult. Somebody was standing there talking to the bus driver the whole time. Nobody saw her until other cars on the road were honking violently at her on another road. And she saw this little girl being dragged. My God. For streets. My kids never rode the school bus and I'm so thankful now because like if this is the kind of person driving and then this story you're telling yeah. me like it's scary. I but I also know people who are bus drivers their entire lives and that was their life and they were good people. My daughter wants so bad to be part of the school bus system but she's in a charter school so that ain't yeah. happening. You know she's never gonna be on a bus and she never will. Not after this story nobody's going near So it's now late March 2004. Michelle has been there for almost two years. Amanda's been there for a year. Wow. Ariel comes into Michelle's room and he unchains her and he says, I need your help preparing the room. A new girl will be arriving soon. She was forced to help him drill holes in the wall so that he had a place to hook new chains. Mm. So now let's talk about Gina de Jesus. So Felix de Jesus went to school with Ariel Castro and their families were actually the two most prominent in the Cleveland neighborhood. They had both come from Puerto Rico and the Castros had built up their little empire with the used car lots and the grocery store. The De Jesus family had also built up businesses in the area. So they were Mm. both, you know, very well-known families and they were good friends. Felix had a 14-year-old daughter named Georgina. She was known as Gina and she was best friends with Ariel's youngest daughter, Arlene. (sighs) They were both in seventh grade. This is why you don't trust other people's parents. Right. This is why you don't have sleepovers. I can't. Do it. I don't get it. He was friends with the dad. Oh, my God. And this was his daughter's best friend. So it's Friday, April 2nd, 2004, and the two girls were walking home from school together. It was rainy out, and they were planning to go to Gina's house to play, but they needed permission from Arlene's mom. So they called Nilda from the payphone, and... Mm. Gina let Arlene borrow the 50 cents from her bus fare to make the call. Nilda was like, you need to come home. You're grounded. You got in trouble. Gina now did not have the full $1.25 she needed to catch the bus home. Arlene thought her mom would say yes and they would walk home together. Yeah. But now they were going to split up and Gina's parents gave her bus money because they didn't want her walking home. Oh, my God. So the two girls parted ways. They were going in opposite directions. Because it was raining out, Ariel Castro was arriving at the school. He was going to pick up his daughter, Arlene, but he couldn't find her. As he was leaving the school, he actually saw his daughter talking with Gina. He would later tell police that when he saw Gina outside with his 13-year-old daughter, he was instantly attracted to her. (sighs) Gina had developed early, and she had larger breasts. When he saw her, he was thinking of her in a sexual way. She's 14. Yeah. <sighs> it happens. We grow it up grosses fast. me the fuck out. This girl has no idea. She's 14. No. She's developing. She probably hates her breasts. She you probably, know? Be, you know, there's a very good chance that she doesn't even know about sex yet. 
So he saw the girls split up. He took this opportunity to pull up alongside Gina. He rolls down his window and he says, hey, Gina, have you seen my daughter Arlene? And Gina said, oh, yeah, she started walking home the other way. And he said, you should just jump in the car with me. We'll turn around and pick up Arlene and I'll get you guys out of the rain and take you home. So she gets in the car with him. You can't fault these girls. Like, I probably would have fallen for this at 14. It's his daughter and they literally just separated and they were walking separate ways. Her dad knows this guy. Yeah. This is why they tell you from a young age, don't get in the car with anybody, even if they say it's your parent's friend, blah, blah, blah. This is prime example. Unless it's a zombie apocalypse and you're about to, your <laughs> brains are about to be eaten, okay? Or you're about to be shot down by a tank. There are exceptions, but this isn't one of them. This isn't. Not for rain. No. As soon as she got in the car, he didn't turn around to go get his daughter. And then his story changed and he was like puppies no it wasn't this was even weirder he now asks a 14 year old girl he says hey i'll drop you off at your house but can we stop by my house real quick i need help moving a speaker why would you ask a 14 year old girl to help move a speaker and gina's like um okay like she didn't know what to say he stops at his house and he takes her in leads her upstairs and then he said oh i don't need you to help me with that speaker after all and at that point he becomes a disgusting monster and he tells her she needs to take her pants off and show him her private areas she said no i want to leave and he said okay i'll let you leave but you can't go out the same door you came in and he tricked her into entering the basement instead once she was down in the basement he tied her up with plastic ties and then raped her After he was done, he chained her to the pole and placed a motorcycle helmet over her head, just as he had done with the other two girls. Michelle could hear Gina screaming downstairs, and she knew that he was attacking another girl in the house. And that just has to be so hard. Yeah. Michelle really felt like, because Michelle was 21. She's the mama bear now. She was the mama. And I remember, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but he thought she was 14. And when he found out she was 21, he got so angry Mm -hmm. at her because she looked 14. He was like, I thought you were so much younger and like started beating her because (sighs) she wasn't young. So he definitely preyed on young underage girls. Yeah. Later, he'll say that he didn't know how old they were, but he did. Yeah. They were friends with his teenage daughters. (laughs) Right. So at 5 p.m. that night, Nancy Ruiz, who was Gina de Jesus's mother, reported her daughter missing to the police as she was over two hours late to when she should have been home from school. Nancy told the police that although her daughter was physically healthy, she had the mental capacity of a nine-year-old and was attending special education classes at the school. So she was very concerned. Mm. Police interviewed Arlene Castro as she was the last person to see Gina before she went missing. Police dogs were able to trace her scent to the end of the block, but then her trail went cold. Of course, that would be where she got in the car with Ariel Castro. Yeah. Cleveland police blanketed the area, but came up with nothing. They decided that they should go look at Amanda Berry's boyfriend's house again. And so they showed up. DJ? And they arrested DJ. What the fuck? As a suspect in the Dina de Jesus missing persons case. I don't understand. A few hours later, he was released, but for several years, he would be questioned and suspected as the one responsible for the disappearance of both girls. Wow. Okay. Who knows how his life was affected, too? This 16-year-old kid was, I'm sure, and there's probably people in the neighborhood side-eyeing him thinking that he did this. Wow. So Gina's family began organizing a search and rescue group and posted flyers all over the area. They were a well-known family. Everybody came out to support. And of course, who was there? Ariel Castro. 
Yeah. So he would show up and help hand out flyers. He even was sick enough to bring one of the flyers home. Oh, yeah. Posted on their walls. He did. He posted it on her wall. In the weeks after Gina's disappearance, Ariel began to grow paranoid that he would be caught. He thought that he would have been visibly seen on one of the cameras at the middle school where he was driving around when he picked her up. He actually wrote a four-page confession letter. Oh, He dedicated time recalling how his childhood had been so hard. He had been abandoned by his parents and sexually molested by a friend while he was young. He went into details about his marriage and he confessed how jealous he was that she moved on without him and allowed another man to raise his children. He claimed he was a sexual predator in the letter, but he also blamed his victims for going along with him. (laughs) What would you have done if they didn't? (laughs) Killed them. Beat them. Kill them. He calls them women repeatedly in the letter, although both Amanda and Gina were minors when he kidnapped them. He says he's a sexual predator that needs help but will never get it. He apologized to the victim's families and claimed that he had a cyst on his brain that led to him having no emotions while hurting the girls. How do you know about the cyst on your I brain? I don't know. He's Give me a break. shit up. He said he was holding the girls against their will and talked about wanting to end his life. He then detailed where his money was and who to leave it to. He said, leave it to my four kids and the three victims currently living in my house. However, when it was discovered that the cameras at the school were actually not working that day. How many times do we hear the fucking cameras not working? Cameras are never working. Ariel realized he did not have to go through with the suicide and he just stuffed that letter into a drawer in his kitchen. For later. But don't worry, it'll be found later. Yeah. And it'll be used against him. But he was going to kill himself. Because he thought he was going to be caught. For the girls in such a situation that if he hadn't come back to do anything. They would have died. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a blessing in disguise. I thought about that too. It's like if he committed suicide, nobody had any idea. Right. And nobody would be going to his house for any reason. Because nobody came to his house. Right. After Gina's kidnapping, the community was very afraid and they were pressuring the Cleveland police to do more to make them feel safe again. Parents would no longer let their children walk to and from school. You know, instead they would get on the bus with Ariel Castro. Oh my God. (laughs) So Amanda and Gina's disappearance became national news. It became a political issue. People were really pressuring Cleveland to like get it together when it came to missing person searches. So they did. They tried. They did searches all over. They corralled all of the sex offenders within a 20 mile radius and they put them under lie detector tests and DNA tests. They combed all of the parks, the rivers, the woods, everything. They looked at security cameras from all over the area, but nothing was found. There was a $20,000 reward offered for those who provided tips that led to the recovery of Amanda or Gina. Now, poor little Arlene Castro was struggling after the abduction of her best friend. She was the last person to see her, and she felt guilty because she hadn't walked home with her friend. (sighs) And she actually fell into a deep, deep depression, and she began self-cutting. Yeah. She needed therapy to help her with the feelings of guilt she had, and her own fucking father was the one who caused this. Oh, And he knew this. This really upsets me too. He knew his daughter was struggling with depression and cutting herself. And he's sitting there with her best friend in his house. Assaulting her and keeping her in a basement. Like there's no explanation for the depths of evil that this man is. His name is just evil. So Michelle Knight met Gina de Jesus a couple weeks after she had been brought to the house. Ariel allowed them to meet in the bathroom before he took Gina back down to the basement. He was keeping Gina in the basement like he does with all the girls until he can trust them. Mm -hmm. Several months later, Ariel Castro came into Michelle's room and removed her small bucket and replaced it with a larger one. He then ordered Gina to come into the room with Michelle and he chained the two girls' ankles together on the mattress. Oh. He then gave Michelle some clothes to wear now that she would be sharing the room with Gina. Finally. 
Michelle's been there for like three years at this point. Mm. And Gina's been there a few months. And so he let them live together. And Michelle talks about how her and Gina became like sisters. How do you not? You're chained together. Exactly. They had to use the bathroom together. They ate together. They spent every waking moment together. Mm -hmm. He was tired of having girls on three floors. It said it was a four bedroom house. So I don't know. He had his bedroom and then he had the girls in two bedrooms. I don't know what was in the other bedroom upstairs. Probably a bunch of junk because everything Mm. I read was that he was a hoarder. Mm. So I think his house was pretty disgusting. Cleveland investigators continue to come up short. They couldn't find anything. And Luana, who was Amanda Berry's mom, went on Montel Williams. You remember Montel Williams? Sure do. (laughs) And she went on there to meet with the psychic Sylvia Brown. I also remember her. And Sylvia Brown told her that she believed Amanda was dead. She told her that she saw Amanda in water. This kind of pisses me off. So the psychic said, you just need to move on. Your daughter's dead. She's floating in water somewhere. And it devastated Luana. My God. Her daughter had now been missing for two years. Now, something really sick that Ariel started on the second year of Amanda's disappearance is he would make all three girls come down into the living room and they would watch the vigil on TV where all of their family members would be saying, we want to find our girls. And he would bring them a cake. (sighs) And he told them from now on, they would all celebrate their abduction day as if it was their birthday instead. Wow. Okay. Ariel was beginning to let his captives have a little bit more freedom. He would allow them to be unchained while in their bedrooms, but he still had the doors locked and the windows were boarded up. So there was never a chance for them to escape. They continued to live in darkness. They never knew if it was day or night. They determined everything by when Ariel would come and go. He would bring them down to the kitchen for dinner, which was always a can of Goya beans and some Minute Maid rice. That's what they ate every single night. Wow. Gina and Michelle would be the ones to cook the meal while Ariel would sit at the table with Amanda. He began calling Amanda his wife and he would always treat her as the favorite of the group. Mm -hmm. Michelle and Gina were only allowed to shower once a month. And because of the filth that they lived in, they often had bed sores. I believe it. He would continue to assault and beat the girls in front of each other. He would play mind games with all of them. He would tell them he was going out and then he would lay in wait, kind of like what he did to his wife years ago. He would say, I'm leaving the house. And then he would like hide out somewhere and see if any of them would try to escape or move more than he wanted, anything like that. He was always looking for a reason to punish them. And his punishment was to beat them and put them down in the basement. He would also sometimes remove their plastic toilet buckets. He would deprive them of food and water, or they would be placed in the hot attic in the summertime. So those were the ways he would punish them and keep them in line. These psychological games would cause the girls to form their own prison in their minds. Even if he left them unchained and the door was unlocked, they wouldn't even try to escape. They were always afraid it was a trick or a test that would result in them being punished more. Yeah. He also always carried a gun around with him, and he would remind them that he had his gun or he'd make sure that they could see it. A couple of times he would play Russian roulette with them. I was about to say I'd just fucking rush him and grab it. (laughs) But you just answered the question. He terrified them in every way possible that you can think of to keep them subservient to him. In Christmas of 2005, Amanda's mother Luana, remember she was devastated after Sylvia Brown had claimed that her daughter was dead. She was hospitalized for pancreatitis and heart failure. Mm. And on March 2nd of 2006, she would pass away at the young age of 43. She's my age. Yeah. Her friends and family would all say she died of a broken heart after spending three years looking for her lost daughter. Right. Several weeks later, Amanda Berry would discover that she was pregnant after suffering morning sickness and nausea. Castro seemed pleased that she was pregnant. He wanted her to have the baby, unlike Michelle. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Now, I mentioned before that Michelle had been given a spiral notebook and he did give spiral notebooks to the other two girls and every single one of them journaled in their own ways. Amanda had created a system and she would document how many times Ariel would assault her every day and she would put little tally marks in the corner of the page for each Mm. of her journal entries. This would be really helpful later on when they're convicting him to know how many times to convict him. Sadly, in her journal, this is just Amanda, the one he treated the best. It would be anywhere between two and five tally marks per day. How is that possible? I don't even know how this guy got it up as much as he was able to assault these girls. No, he sounds like a depressed, disgusting person. And Michelle describes him and she said he was absolutely the most disgusting person you could ever imagine having sex with. She said he smelled, he didn't bathe. And yeah. How do you go to work and continue being a normal person if you're like that outside? How do you have sex 10 times a day? If he's assaulting each girl. That's what I'm saying. Two to seven that doesn't times make sense. Men are not like that. This guy is. Somehow. I guess. I guess he could assault them. Yeah. Maybe with his fingers In other ways, or something. Uh, the, yeah. I, because I don't see how it happens again and again and again. And for a man to be in the mood literally all day long. Yeah. They didn't go into a lot of detail. I don't blame them. Yeah. He assaulted them in some way. So it has now been two years since he abducted Gina Amanda's been there three years and Michelle's been there four years. And all of a sudden he comes into their rooms and he says he has a special visitor for them. So his daughter had been married and had kids and had a two-year-old son, his oldest daughter, Angie. He brought his grandson up to meet the girls, which seems absolutely insane. He told them to just cover up. He brings his two-year-old grandson into the room and the child is smart. Even at two, he knows something's off and he starts screaming for his mom. And then Ariel quickly takes him back downstairs and like rushes him out of the house. And the girl said they were super hopeful at this point. They're like, he's dumb enough. This kid's going to say something to his mom about girls or whatever. Girl chain, girl bed. I don't know. And so they said they kind of had their hopes up, but nothing ever came Mm -hmm. of it. A few weeks later, Ariel received a call from his daughter, Angie, and she said, hey, dad, I'm stopping by. And she was bringing her sister, Emily, and her husband over kind of unexpectedly. And Michelle said he like panicked and he came and like grabbed all three of the women and took them down into the basement and tied mm-hmm. them up down there. And he stuffed socks into their mouths and wrapped them up with the chains. And he told them he would shoot all three of them dead if they made one peep. Uh-huh. And she said several minutes later, she heard his two daughters and the husband come in. And she even said that she heard one of the daughters say that he needed to unlock the basement door. They needed to go down there and see what was going on. So I think they did. Oh. No, I think the kids said something to them. But Castro told them that the basement was flooded and no one could go down there. And then mm. they left. But Michelle said that Castro became so paranoid, he actually left the girls in the basement, all three of them tied up together for three weeks. Wow. He was afraid his family would show back up. Basement's flooded. I don't know what I would do. Like, if I had a dad that was that creepy, like had padlocks, and I don't know. Like, what do you do if that's your dad? It depends on if you're scared of your own dad or not. I if think you're not, were. If you're not scared of them, then you would just do it. You'd find a way to go look yourself. I mean, Angie had her husband with her, you think. Yeah. You know, obviously she brought him over. There's always a, a certain dynamic. The very fact that he brought his grand son, son up to see them. He's, it, well, like, was he trying what? to get caught? I wonder sometimes. Or if he maybe was, he thought he's so young he can get away with it. I think that's it. I mean, he's one of the most fucked up people I've ever studied. So on Christmas Day, Amanda went into labor. Oh, gosh. 
he woke Michelle up at like five in the morning and said it's time and he took them both down into the basement and poor Amanda had to give birth in a black baby pool. He put her in that so that it wouldn't be messy. Mm. He told Michelle that she would help deliver the baby and if the baby didn't survive, he would shoot her dead. Wow. And poor Amanda had nothing and she was in a lot of pain. It was a long, painful labor. And Michelle said when the baby came out, she was blue in the face and she wasn't crying and she was Aww. freaked out because she didn't know what to do. And she told Amanda to push as hard as she could. The baby came out and she basically gave her like mouth to mouth and tried to do everything. And eventually the baby did start crying. Aww. It was a little girl. Amanda named her Jocelyn. <laughs> and the girl said actually having a baby in the house made it better. It's like a ray of sunshine. Yeah, exactly. Something for them to focus on outside of their misery. To do better for that girl than they had. They were all very sad that another person had now been brought into this fucked up hostage situation. And they noticed that Ariel slipped into even more of a delusional territory after Jocelyn was born. He truly believed they were all one happy little family. Sister wife situation. I think that so. That he controls. Exactly. Now, in June of 2008, this is just another fucked up situation I'm going to bring up because it makes me mad. Ariel Castro was out riding his motorcycle at very high speeds without a helmet. He also had the license plate mounted incorrectly. And when the cop ran the plates, it was for a completely different vehicle. All the red flags. Mm -hmm. He also did not have his license or registration on him. The cop ran a criminal background check. Nothing came back on Ariel and the cop just let him off with a warning. This should have been an arrest. He was doing like five things like most people right. would have been arrested. But it goes to show for whatever reason, Ariel came across as a very charming person. Mm -hmm. He was a gaslighter. Narcissistic. He was able to talk him way out. And he was, you know, the musician dude. He probably dropped the name of the band he was in. Like he was able to get himself out of a lot of situations. Oh man, just taking a stroll around the neighborhood. Yep. And they let him go. Out. So Jocelyn continued to grow. She was a little toddler and she began talking and Castro began getting worried that she would see something about the girls on a TV program because he would watch cartoons and things with her. And so at that time, he told Michelle and Gina that they needed to take on aliases for Jocelyn to call them. So Michelle became known as Juju and Gina became known as Chelsea to Jocelyn. This is all helping them, right? Jocelyn's like two or three years old at this point. She starts asking questions about the chains and why yeah. Juju. She's like, why are Juju, Aunt Juju and Chelsea chained up? And so Ariel removed them from the room so the little girl wouldn't be scared. He was convinced at this point. I mean, they've all been there. It's 2008. They've been there for like between six, four to six years, depending mm -hmm. on the girl. That's insane. I can't even wrap my brain they, around that. I'm, I'm trying like, when you say that, but I can't. They were so beat down, they wouldn't even try to escape at this point. <sighs> and they're so close. They're streets away from their own family. They don't know. Yeah, I guess they do know where they are because they went in there. Yeah, because they passed their own homes to go to his house. Ariel was kind to Jocelyn. He would bring her clothes and toys. He began taking Jocelyn to church with him on Sundays. Yeah, because it's his own kid. He hasn't hurt any of his own children. He would tell others that she was his girlfriend's daughter. He would shoot home videos of himself playing with Jocelyn, but he always made sure not to have any of the girls showing up in the background. By this point, after being in captivity for as long as they had been, the psychiatrist would say that all three girls were suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. He had deprived them of their humanity in many ways. And they were saying how it works with Stockholm Syndrome is that it 
causes you to revert to being like a child. Mm -hmm. So they had been infantilized is what they said. And they relied on him for every single basic need. And that makes you bond just like a child bonds to their mother. When you're brought back to that stripped down state, you start bonding to your caregiver, which was Mm -hmm. Ariel Castro. And Amanda, you know, she reflects on it. It was really hard for her because she had this child that she loved so much. And he was the father of that child. And like there was a really fucked up bond there for her. It wasn't as bad for her as the others. Mm -hmm. Even though she was taken, it was still this, it became this sort of relationship and it was more their family with the helpers. Right. So in 2009, Ariel made an illegal U-turn in heavy traffic while driving his school bus outside of the junior high. Good job. (laughs) Several teachers witnessed it and saw how he put a whole bus full of students in danger because he was too lazy to drive around the block like he was supposed to. Mm. So he got rewarded again. And so that would be his second strike as a school bus driver. And he got another 60 day suspension without pay. Now we get into November of 2011. There's a neighbor. His name's Israel Lugo. And he hears pounding on some of the doors of Castro's house. Mm. He calls the police. The officers knock on the front door, but no one answers. They walk around outside the house and they didn't see anything and they just left. Soon after, another neighbor was sitting on his porch when he heard screaming coming from Ariel Castro's basement. He said it was the kind that gave you goosebumps and it lasted for 10 seconds. Like somebody was in true pain. Mm. He also called the police. Once again, the police showed up. They knocked on the front door. No one answered and they left. My God, that's not what happens. It's so fucked You investigate. Up. Really? So little Jocelyn is now four years old and Ariel's taking her everywhere. He's taking her to the park to play. He's even taking her over to his mom's house. He's continuing to introduce her as his girlfriend's daughter, but he's never introducing his girlfriend to anyone. My God. So he's dumb. Wow. Amanda was teaching her daughter to read and write. She had some old curriculum books that Ariel had found at some of the schools. She had a little chalkboard. So she's living life with her daughter and trying to bring her up. Mm-hmm. Ariel would come home every day. He would let Jocelyn out of the room, but not her mom. He would let Jocelyn run around the house. She could play downstairs. She'd watch TV. But she was still kind of, well, she still was a prisoner. She was growing up in a house that was dark. You're growing up and your mom is not allowed to leave her room. Yeah. And but you don't know start anything asking else. This. Yeah, she doesn't know. This she is her whole know. life. Maybe this is what happens to moms. She doesn't know because she's not talking but to anyone else that's outside. what's amazing about little human souls. Eventually, they say, like, I have nothing else to base this on, but this seems wrong. Doesn't seem happy. And they speak up. So she's growing up in this dark house. She's not getting any medical or dental care the whole time because Mm -hmm. he can't take her anywhere. Michelle said her greatest fear was that Jocelyn would grow up and Ariel would start abusing her in the same way. Yep. That summer, neighbor Elsie Centron calls the police because... She sees strange activity in the Castro backyard. She says there is a naked woman crawling in the backyard and she sees a little girl in the attic window. And this is supposed to be a single guy. Everybody, (laughs) once Uh, again. Yeah, then you call. This is so fucked up. The cops show up. They pound on the door. No one answers. They shine their flashlight around and then they just leave. How many times? This is the third fucking time. What the fuck? Now there's an assisted living community that is right behind Seymour Street and they have a second story that they could see into the backyard and several residents also started telling their managers or whatever. There's a naked woman crawling around outside. They said we see three naked girls with dog collars crawling on all fours in the backyard of this house. (laughs) Cleveland police were called by the assisted living home but they never showed up at the house. What the hell? 
And then Ariel constructs an eight foot tall fence with chicken wire around his home. And they said he started letting the trees and bushes become overgrown so no one could see into his backyard. And the police are like, ah, it's probably fine. It's just women captive. They're not murdered. So in 2012, Ariel Castro has another incident where he is driving his bus all over the place to go grocery shopping. (laughs) And he faces another disciplinary hearing. And it's his third issue. And they say, if you have anything else, you're going to be fired. So he got another suspension there. Sure, the women did not appreciate his suspensions because that meant he was home every day. In 2012, Ariel Castro parks his school bus and leaves it in a fire lane. (laughs) He goes home to take a nap. And then when he comes back, the principal of the school is like, I called the bus depot. You can't leave your bus sitting here. And he's like, what, man? I'm like getting on my route now to go home. And that was the final thing. And they fired him after 22 years of being a bus driver. 22 years? Yep. Wow. Now, here's the problem. He now has lost his job and he's at home all the time. Yeah. And the girls say it was the worst time. They said he was the most violent ever after he lost his job and he would assault them even more yeah. than he already was. That's what I was saying. I'm like, wow, these suspensions must be hard. They didn't want him home. No, you want him gone all the time. Mm-hmm. He was still taking Jocelyn out and his brother actually ran into him one time. He was at McDonald's and he saw this little girl with his brother and he was like, who is this? And he says, oh, it's my girlfriend's daughter. And his brother's like, where's her mom? And Ariel said, oh, she's grocery shopping. A few weeks later, he runs into him again at a Burger King and he's <laughs> sitting there with this little girl and his brother thinks it's odd. He says, where's your girlfriend? I want to meet your girlfriend. And he's like, oh, she's out running errands. I'm just babysitting her daughter. But he was just so able to gaslight these people that they believed him. Mm-hmm. Even his own fucking mom. He's bringing yeah. the, I just don't understand how a family, she's five, maybe six years old at this time, and you've never met the girlfriend, but he always has the daughter. Like, yeah. how do you not think that's weird? No, because the, <laughs> the daughter's supposed to come way later into meeting your family. Right. He introduced her to his mother on purpose. His brother wasn't on purpose. It was a run-in situation. It's the just, only thing I can say is as at least he is treating his own daughter well. At least as much as he can. But yeah, fuck. So there were several other incidents of people just coming over to the house or him being out with Jocelyn where you think the guy would have been gotten caught, but he just didn't. He was able to like talk his way out of it. Freedom would finally come for the girls in 2013. It was on May 6th, 2013 at 4 p.m. Ariel announced that he was headed to his mother's house for dinner. He had let Jocelyn out and she was running up and down. He had been watching TV with her and then he left. And for whatever reason, he had forgotten to lock Amanda's door. Jocelyn comes running up and tells her mom, daddy's gone. He went to grandma's house. And at first, Amanda was like, this is a test. He didn't lock my door. Yeah. He always locks my door. So she waited for a little while. And then she realized maybe he wasn't coming back. And this would be her opportunity. Mm. So she said it took her a while, but she finally mustered up the courage and she peeked outside and she realized that he wasn't there. She didn't hear anything in the house. And so she went downstairs and she tried the front door and to her amazement, he had not locked it from the outside like he usually did. The front door was unlocked, Oh! but the screen door was chained shut. It was glass. So she could see through it and she saw neighbors across the street and she started pounding on the glass door as loud as she could to try and get their attention. She also was trying to break the glass, but it was too thick and it wouldn't break. And she just began yelling, help me, help me. I'm Amanda Berry. Help me. And eventually there was a neighbor. His name was Charles Ramsey. He noticed her Uh and he came over. He's like, I just saw this little white girl. And Charles Ramsey, he's like a very tall black man. Mm -hmm. I 
think he was like in his late 20s and he knew Ariel Castro. They had like barbecued together or whatever. And like he was just like, Like, why is this white girl? Why is there a little white girl? Yeah. And he said he came over and she's like, I'm Amanda Berry. And he was able to kick out the bottom panel from the frame. And she crawled out that panel and then she pulled her daughter out. He said he knew something was up when a little white girl came running into a big black man's arms. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, I knew something was really off. Right. And she called 911 and her 911 call was just said, help me. I'm Amanda Berry. I've been kidnapped. I've been missing for 10 years and I'm here and I'm free now. And she gave him the address and then the police arrived. Wow. Amanda Berry was freed at age 27. She had been captured in that house for 10 years. Wow. Gina De Jesus was now 23 years old and she had been there for nine years. That's crazy. She's so young. And then Michelle Knight, who was now age 32, had been under his rule for 11 years. Wow. Amanda Berry and Gina De Jesus were reunited with their family to cheers and crowds of supporters. Family and neighbors expressed shock that the long missing women were being held so close to home by a neighborhood bus driver many knew. Right. Michelle was suffering from many medical issues when she came out. She actually had to stay in the hospital for quite a while. They said that she had a life-threatening bacterial infection in her stomach and she was literally weeks away from death. Oh, my God. When she came out, she was only 74 pounds. Oh, my God. She was the most, as I said before, abused. Her jaw had been misaligned from (sighs) so much beating that she had to undergo several surgeries to correct her jaw. Because she had been kept in the darkness for so long, her her sight was messed up. She has to wear really, really thick glasses. Um, she was the one that was kept in the basement the most. And yeah, the other two girls, maybe also because they were younger, I don't know, but Gina and Amanda did not have any lifelong other than the trauma. They didn't have any medical issues, but Michelle came out with a lot. Wow. She was reunited with her brothers, Eddie and Freddie. What about her son? Mm, that's not going to be a happy story. Oh, no. She did not wish to see her mother. She has yet. I don't think she still has a good relationship with her mother. She just felt like her mom didn't do anything to try and find her. Her mom kind of wrote her off and I think Uh she was still angry about the mother's boyfriend, but she was able to get her life together. When she was done in the hospital, they released her into an assisted living facility so she could get her feet underneath her. They were all super traumatized. I was reading about you know, Gina couldn't sleep in a bedroom because she had been trapped in a room for so long. Yeah, I wouldn't either. She came home and she needed to sleep in the living room in a bigger open area with her family. Michelle is triggered by the pull tabs from like the fans. Oh, for sure. They all have. That's all she had. Yeah. Amanda had a lot of emotional trauma to work through because as I said she had that like connection to Ariel as the father of her child and she had a child that she had to try and explain things to now it's a really difficult time even after you're you're so thankful to be out the family was so happy to see their children but it's not the same people that went in there and no it's a lifelong not, not whatsoever as far as Michelle's son Joey he's now 14 years old when she comes out He's been living with the foster family and knows them as his parents because he was so young. And so she did reach out to the foster family. She just asked for pictures of her son and she wanted to, you know, hear how his life had been. And they agreed to take it very slowly. They decided that they would wait until he was age 18 before he knew. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It would have disrupted his whole world. Of course. I mean, he's still there. Her life was cut short by being in this way, even though she was fighting for him. Yeah. At least he grew up. But she missed his whole life. I know. And it sucks. 
It really sucks. Cause she was literally there to get it back. Yeah. So let's talk about fucking Ariel Castro. Fuck him. So he was arrested. Go down under the sea, Ariel. <laughs> he was held on $8 million bail. The police were able to get all of the journals and find out, you know, what was really going on in the house. They indicted him for 977 charges, including aggravated murder, kidnapping, and rape. They were going after him for the murder of the five fetuses. Yeah. That, um, I Michelle mean... He beat her so yes. that it wouldn't happen. There's a difference between something else and an actual choice to beat yes. someone so that they cannot have that baby. The other reason that they went after aggravated murder of the fetuses is because that carried a death penalty. Yeah. And the prosecutors, because of how heinous this crime was, wanted him to get the death penalty. Yeah. But it was decided not to move forward with that because in order to do the death penalty, they would have to have a full trial. And they decided that that would not be in the best interest of the three women because they would have to go and testify. And they didn't want to make those women relive their trauma. Well, that's considerate, I guess. And I say I guess because were they offered a choice? Yes. So after he was indicted, he accepted a plea deal that would spare him the death penalty. He admitted guilt to 937 of the charges. So they dropped the 40 that were related to the aggravated murder of the fetuses. Okay. With this plea deal, it would still put him in prison for a thousand years. So he's not getting out. And they felt like that was enough. time. You got to make a deal with the devil to last (laughs) that long, baby. And they said there was no reason to put the girls through no. the hell I for get, a death I mean, penalty. I totally understand that. Yeah. Death penalty is is a cowardly way out anyway, and it's just to please our government and certain people. Right. The girls really didn't care if he was killed or they just wanted no. him off. They just yeah. wanted him gone and out of their lives out where they could lives. never see him again. Right. So on August 1st, 2013, he was at his sentencing hearing and Castro addressed the court and he said, I am not a monster. He described himself as a victim. He said that he was sick and that he denied in court that he ever raped or tortured his victims. At one point (laughs) saying there was harmony in the home. Chained up, naked, no showers for months. He said, I did not prey on these women. I just acted on my sexual instincts because of my sexual addiction. As God is my witness, I never beat these women like they're trying to say I did. I never tortured them. Okay. Whatever, dude. It was all in his confession. That was the other thing they found, his four-page confession that he had written because it was in the kitchen drawer. Like, they had so much evidence against him. And Michelle Knight was the only one of the three girls that showed up at his sentencing hearing. Gina and Amanda didn't want to see him again. They were mm-hmm. just done. But Michelle, she was like, no, fuck you. I'm gonna I've show lost up. my entire life. Yep. I have nothing left. She lost her son. I mean, she lost. She, she doesn't have anyone. her family right now. Yeah. She doesn't have her son. She's going to see him put away. She said, you took 11 years of my life away and now I have it back. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. Good. He was actually sentenced to life in prison without parole plus an additional 1,000 years. You know what's really (laughs) funny is if alien colonizers come our way, I'm not even saying from outer space, maybe beyond the ice wall. (laughs) Who knows? What if they decide to enact and keep in place these additional... That would be amazing. (laughs) 
like these additional sentences that are beyond a normal human's life. They're like, keep you alive. We, we can inject you now <laughs> because, you know, we can keep you alive for a really long time. So you're actually going to serve out this additional 1,000 years. That would be amazing. That's crazy. Now, the other problem they had was this home, Castro's house, because he had lost his job, he had not been paying his taxes. And so it was actually owned by the state. And they were trying to decide what to do with the house because it had become like this. I don't know what the word is where people want to go and visit it because of like, oh, it's it was a, like an drawing. attraction. Yeah. The neighbors didn't like that and they didn't think it was respectful to the girls. So they decided it was going to be demolished. It should be. And they did just um, he was sentenced on August 1st. And on August 7th, they tore his house down. And Michelle Knight actually showed up for the demolishment of his house. That was kind of like a (sighs) what a relief for her closure. I mean, what a closure to actually see it be torn down in front of your house of horrors. None of your memories can sit there anymore. No, they're gone. Ariel Castro had been sentenced and he had been transferred to a pretty rough prison he was a weird prisoner everything I read was that he would complain because they weren't feeding him enough he would complain about how uncleanly his room was it's like fuck you dude he had made did this to all these yeah, people I guess and they said he would like rip his clothes off and just walk around naked and the guards would be like you gotta put your clothes back on dude like he was just <laughs> whatever he's and used to being pleased and being he's a narcissist yeah he complained that the people were mean to him the other prisoners which I'm glad they were mean to him anyways he didn't even last a month because they found him on September 3rd so he's sentenced August 1st and then just a month later they actually found him dead in his cell he hung himself okay from a bed sheet I'm not surprised not with the he was ready to do it before this pisses me off because the three women that lived with him they had to face the fucking hellish conditions for 11 fucking years with no chance of escape. They couldn't kill mm-hmm. themselves. This guy couldn't even last a month in no, a normal prison. because he's a cowardly fucking person and that's why he wants control over baby. other people. So fuck him. Fuck he him. He escaped his hell and he's dead now, but I'm, I'm glad he's dead, but I'm also mad because I think he should have been subjected. Of course. He never planned to do it. That's why he had that suicide note. He was ready to bail out yeah. the moment he thought someone found out about him. Oh. He just got, this was the first time he had an opportunity to do it. And that's when it happened. Yep. So the girls did all write their own books. Uh, Michelle was the first one. She wrote a book called Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness in 2014. And that was one of the main books I used when writing this episode. And then Gina and Amanda wrote a book together in 2015 called Mm. Hope. And it's a memoir of survival in Cleveland. The girls are all very active. They have all started charities. Amanda Berry actually got on to the local news and she became like a journalist in a way. She would do a special segment on missing persons and really put the pressure on the Cleveland. A lot of laws were passed. They added more task forces to the Cleveland Police Department to focus on missing persons. Gina started a charity for the families of missing persons because she said that her family didn't have the means to really get the attention and she wanted to make sure any family that had someone go missing would have the opportunity to get the money and resources that they needed to do their own searches if they needed to like her family did. Michelle Knight changed her name. She wants to be seen as a survivor and not a victim. She's very clear about that. She changed her name to Lily Rose Lee. 
She started a charity that connects rescue animals with their forever homes. So she helps place animals. That's her passion in life. When she started her charity, she said, ever since I was a little girl, I always wanted to take care of animals because I felt safe. I felt security. They never judged me. They always stayed by my side no matter what. They are. They helped me to open trust, open up love, and be able to open my heart to others. And so that's why she dedicated her charity to animals. Something that I didn't mention earlier is that when these girls were released, there was a large kind of GoFundMe effort that raised over nine million dollars for these girls okay and that was split evenly between the four of them because we have jocelyn too so amanda's daughter jocelyn was still a victim or she is a victim and so that money was distributed and they each had you know some money to help build this new life Mm -hmm. start these charities and move forward it makes so much sense that she would then back or start an animal charity because she had that moment she was One, wooed in by puppies. Two, he tried to give her a puppy and he killed it. Right. And three, who is the other most abused group of anything on this planet? Animals. Right. They're just as abused as human beings, if not more tortured. It's an extension. She was treated like a dog and now she's going to save dogs. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. So there you go. So that's my story today. It's not uplifting. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Wow. These women will never recover from the trauma that this fucking bastard exerted on them. He just felt entitled to just taking whoever he wanted. He did. I'm just so glad Jocelyn got out there at age six. Oh my gosh. She has a chance to recover. Yeah. She might not remember. And I feel bad for his four children. With His son, Ariel Jr., changed his name to his middle name, Anthony. He wanted no association with his dad. He did not want Ariel to be his name. Yeah. I don't even know how Arlene came to grapple with the fact that her father was the one that abducted her best friend. Yeah. One of his other daughters is actually in prison for trying to kill her own child. So that's a whole nother sad story. Nilda passed away young. She was younger than 50 when -hmm. she died. And it was, you know, that tumor that eventually took her out that all started from (sighs) him beating her. Wow. I had to leave so many details out because there was a lot going on in this story. This one person and his sick, twisted mind affected so many lives. His Mm -hmm. four children, his ex-wife, his own family. This little girl, Jocelyn, his mom, like the Castro family was traumatized, too, because they all thought this was like, you know, their son, their uncle, their cousin. The community. He was a bus driver. So many people trusted him. 22 years. And he was a musician. I didn't go into a lot of depth about it, but like he was in one of the most popular Latino music bands. Like everybody loved him. So when this came out, it was a complete shock. shock. I don't understand how you can be in a band and do all that, too, and pull off never having someone come to your place if you're so involved with so many other people. So people would. He had band practice. They just could never go past the living room. So anyone who came to his house, they were always in the kitchen or the living room. His room was downstairs. Nobody ever went upstairs. And when the police came in, they actually said there was a huge curtain, like a really heavy black curtain that blocked the stairwell and people just knew him as being an eccentric and that he was like Mr. Private. He had been putting padlocks on the door since his kids were young. So nobody thought anything of it. He had always had the basement door locked shut. So it was already the perfect house to bring women into to abduct because everyone assumed it was already locked up anyways. 
I do question the fucking Cleveland police officers when you hear from multiple people that there are naked women in the backyard crawling around on all fours with a dog collar. Right. From multiple people. At a house that's supposed to be a single man who lives by himself. And so that brings to question, because this was a not so nice neighborhood in Cleveland that was mostly Latino and black, like, did they just not want to go there? They just, you know, write it off that that's a bad part of town and shit happens and they're not going to really look into it. Possibly. I can tell you that if I called in my Boulder neighborhood and said I saw three women with dog collars naked crawling around in the backyard, I can't imagine that the police wouldn't follow up. You never know, though. They're not going to let you go with them. My gosh. Well, that was a fun one. I have heard of the different girls to an extent over the years, but it's been a while. And I don't remember the child part at all. She was actually probably what helped them. Oh, if, yeah, for sure. If she hadn't had Jocelyn, he would have never let them loose. It, I just imagine the Grinch heart. It's black yes. and the baby is born and it's like this little beating red flicker in yep. this tiny black heart it's he doesn't have access to his own kids the way that he used to because she left yes. and got out of that and so now this is his little his chance little of redemption baby and chance of redemption so. i do wonder what the little girl was subjected to it didn't say that he stopped assaulting even her mom like he was still assaulting the three women so i don't know where the child was when these things were going on it's hard to know we weren't there did something with her and then would go up there i just don't understand this level of evil nope. that someone like this exists. And what's scary is there's many, many people like this. They're that everywhere. Exist. Everywhere. What I do know is never fucking get in that car with someone you don't know. Do Whatever age you get are. get in cars. Come Whatever on. Whatever age you are from age two I, to age 70. Do not get in a car with someone you don't know. Even getting in a fucking Uber. The right. world's a scary place. It's, it's a very scary place. We can go on and on and on and on and on and on. And, and on. I did not help make you feel better about the world by doing this case, but be aware. You didn't. And I didn't talk as much. What What did you have to say? It was a horrific case. I mean, there's not it a is. lot of light things to say. During I can't this. because I feel like it's just reiterating everything that we've talked about again and again. We just need some good shit to happen. I know. I didn't know going into this case. I don't know what I was expecting. But it was a very dark case and it brought me down. The only thing that gave me a light was the fact that I got to read Michelle's words and I got to read Gina and Amanda's recount and to see what they're doing now today and how they've overcome, even though they have like fought the worst absolute circumstances you can think of as a human to go through. They've prevailed. I'm so glad that. Michelle Lilly is still here. She had every reason to back out of life and she didn't. And she's doing good things. The other girls too. I'm I'm not discrediting the other girls, no. but she was the OG. Right. <laughs> she was there say. the longest and she was treated the worst. Treated the worst. So and glad you're all yeah. still here, ladies. So Jocelyn would be 17 now. She'll turn 18 this Christmas. Wow. I think that her mother has done everything possible to just raise her as a normal child after, you know, she was let go at age six. Alrighty. Well, that was an amazing story. I hate hearing about it, but we love hearing about it at the same time because we have to talk about it. Right. It's constant and it's happening all over the world. Always. 
If you enjoy our episodes, please give us some ratings wherever it's possible. I don't even know where it's possible. All I know is Apple Podcasts. I think you can leave comments and reviews on YouTube, other yeah. places. I'm not really quite sure, to be Me honest. <laughs> Lucid Lab Podcast, all one word. You can email us at lucidlabpodcast at gmail.com. Please send in your lab reports. We love those so much. We, we really, really do. <laughs> you can also mail us at P.O. Box 251, East Lake, Colorado, 80614. And check us out on social media. I'll add some pictures from this story on there on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook. Other than that, stay lucid, babes. And don't get in cars with people you don't do know. Do not get in cars with, even if you do know them. If they are not supposed to be picking you up, don't do it. Don't fucking do it. And if they say Ever. they have puppies, never believe them. Puppies, candies, guinea pigs. Stay safe out there. Don't be Ariel. Don't be this Ariel. No, be Ariel that sings under the sea. See ya. Bye, everyone.